Growing up in Vermont meant bonfires, Ben and Jerry's ice cream, and the most beautiful autumn leaves and the best maple syrup. It also meant the weirdness that is the region known as the Bennington Triangle, which I didn't learn about until the summer I turned twenty. To this day, I wish I'd never found out about that cursed place. Diane, my best friend since childhood, had always been an avid ghost hunter. She loved dragging me along to anywhere that was supposedly haunted, even if we weren't allowed to be there. The Green Mountain Cemetery, Sabin's Pasture, and the Community College of Vermont were just a few of our many stops. I never believed in the supernatural. For most of my life, I thought that her midnight graveyard visits and trips to supposedly haunted buildings were a waste of time, more of a pastime hobby than an actual passion. My mind was forcibly changed in the course of a single night in 1983. Our junior year of college had started, and Diane proposed a weekend camping trip to one of the forests in the southern part of the state. She even promised that there wouldn't be any ghost hunting on this trip, which was a nice change of pace. I just wanted to relax for a few days, out in nature, before the harsh Vermont winter drove us to stay inside. A week after she set up the trip, we found ourselves in the middle of the woods, outside the tiny town of Somerset, Vermont. It was the morning of October 12th, and soon we had set up a nice campsite. We planned to do some hiking and swimming while we were there, so the rest of the first day was spent in lazy bliss as we canoed, chatted, and fished. That night we cooked up the trout that we had caught, and it was a peaceful night spent under the stars. I slept great. I woke up feeling refreshed and excited for our hike the next day. We got an early start on our trek up Glastonbury Mountain, and by late afternoon we had reached the summit. We rested at the top for a while. We roasted some burgers over a small campfire for dinner. We made sure to thoroughly extinguish the fire, and as the sun began to bleed out, we made our way back down the mountain on the side that would bring us closer to our camp. I wasn't looking forward to hiking in the dark, but I knew I would be fine as long as I wasn't alone. Diane and I had also made sure to wear bright colors, myself in neon yellow and her in flame red, to make it easier to see each other. We'd been extra smart and had expected to be heading back to camp in the dark, so we even had headlamps ready to go when the last of the light began to fade. We made it about a third of the way down when we stopped, because we heard crying. We stopped mid-trail scanning the area around us, trying to see what it was. It was clearly the crying of a small child, not the woman-like cries of a mountain lion or another animal. I'd spent enough time in the woods to note the difference, and something about this cry unnerved me. Not a single person lived on the mountain itself, and we hadn't seen anyone at all in the time that we'd been there. I strained my eyes, but I could not see any other flashlights or lanterns through the dense thicket. I thought I caught a glimpse of something red moving further out among the trees, but she was heading off the trail and into the trees. I yelled at her to come back, but she refused, saying that she couldn't just leave a kid alone in the woods. I tried to point out that a family was probably camping nearby, but she ignored me, 
and kept walking towards the sound. Against my better judgment, I followed her, hesitating before I stepped off the trail. I didn't want her running through the inky wilderness and getting lost or hurt, but nor did I feel comfortable going off trail in a place that neither of us really knew. Within ten minutes, I regretted my decision. I'd been able to see her for the first few minutes, but then I lost sight of her shirt. Even the sound of her rapid footsteps crunching the dead autumn leaves began to fade, and no amount of shouting had brought her back. I listened, trying to pinpoint any sound, when I saw a flash of red out of the corner of my eye. I was so relieved that Diane had returned that I whipped around with a grin on my face. My relief was immediately replaced by confusion. No one was there, and after a few seconds it dawned on me that I still hadn't heard a sound. A moment later, a tug on my sleeve made me scream. I looked down in horror, my heartbeat drumming in my ears, and I saw a little boy in a red jacket. He was looking up at me, with huge, tear-filled eyes, and I felt my fear soften slightly. Hey, kid, where are your parents? I don't know. Mom was here, but now she's not. I crouched down to eye level, making sure that my headlamp was not blinding him. What's your name? Paul. I'm Jeanette. It's nice to meet you, Paul. He stuck out his hand like a little adult, and I gladly shook it with an amused smile. He was a cute kid, and for the first time I was glad that we had gone off trail to find him. Let's go look for your mom and my friend, okay? He nodded trustingly, and he slipped his hand into mine. We had no idea which direction to take, so we made our way further into the dense woodland. I kept us going in a straight line from the path. We made sure to call for Diane and his mom every few minutes. But I was getting more and more nervous about going deeper into the woods. Even so, I still could not bring myself to abandon my friend. Nearly two hours later, we ran into the trail again, and it was very close to our campsite. I was hoping that Diane had been smart enough to wait there for me if she had made it this far, and I was extremely worried at this point. We both had a small flare gun on us in case of an emergency, and that was the only thing assuring me that she was still okay. I got a fire going, since Paul's hand was frigid, and I offered to warm him up some cocoa. He politely declined and curled up in a camping chair by the fire. I sat there in our other chair for about an hour, waiting for Diane to return, and at some point, I must have dozed off. When I woke up, there was a woman by the fire with a weirdly blank look on her face. I blinked rapidly to shake the sleepiness from my eyes, thinking she was just a dream. But the figure remained. I was confused, and I began to panic when it dawned on me who she was. Oh, you must be Paul's mom. I'm so glad you found us. My name is Paula. Oh, that's cute. You named him after you. He's not my child. Uh, I'm sorry? 
She hadn't moved, and the silence stretched tensely between us. I yawned and rubbed my eyes. I thought I was seeing things. A darkness began to seep from her body like a fog. And at first, I thought it was just the firelight casting odd shadows, or my eyes playing tricks on me. But it began to pull from her skeleton-like fingers and on to the ground. I swore, quickly scrambling back away from her out of my chair. By then, I'd noticed that Paul wasn't in sight. I screamed for him. The woman still hadn't moved, but the ooze had reached my tent. It began to dissolve the nylon like acid, its hiss warring with the crackling of the fire. I don't remember much after that, except for running towards the car and trying to explain to the police what had happened. They didn't believe me, of course. When we came back to the campsite, they blamed drinking and an unguarded fire for the state of the tent, even though there was no alcohol in my system. They began searching for Diane, but never found any trace of another person. Five years later, Diane's case went cold. I wouldn't be writing this down if my twelve-year-old nephew hadn't asked me to go for a school project that he was working on, one about people who have seen ghosts. When I asked my nephew why he picked me to interview, he looked up at me just like little Paul had done long ago. He handed me an old yellowed newspaper article, dated October 14, 1950. There was a picture of a little boy on it, in a familiar red jacket, and the headline was about his disappearance near Glastonbury Mountain on October 12, 1950. My nephew tugged gently at my sleeve, his eyes wide as he stared at the tears flowing down my cheeks. Don't cry, Auntie. Not everyone gets to meet two ghosts in one night. What do you mean, two? Yeah, don't you ever go to the library? I shook my head. He exasperatedly pulled out a second article from his school folder. This one had a picture of the woman I'd seen that night. It was about her disappearance from the same area in 1946. They had both been wearing red when they disappeared. And now that I remembered, so had Diane. I know I'll never go back there, but I believe that if I did go back, I would see three ghosts. A Michigan Monster from Mr. Smith. Are you ready for a good old-fashioned tale of kids getting in over their heads? The following events happened a long time ago, more than a decade, in fact, but I still remember most of the details quite clearly. For a bit of context, I was born and raised in a small rural town in the southeastern U.S., but at the time of this story... A sizable enclave of my family lived in the backwoods of the Upper Peninsula in Michigan. Once a year, my parents and I would pile into the car and make the trip up to see my Michigan relatives, and we'd all converge on a small campground on the shores of Lake Superior for a three- or four-day reunion. I always looked forward to it, because that meant several days of enjoying home-cooked food by the lakeshore with family. 
I especially loved seeing all of my cousins, who were about my age. Plus, most of the older family members would either be preoccupied with catching up on gossip or busy making casseroles, and other dishes for the cookout. This meant that all the kids were free to roam the beautiful shoreline of the lake, or go hiking through the woods. Basically, we had unprecedented freedom. It was a blast. Well, usually. At this particular reunion, I was 13. Two of my cousins, Erica and Cody, were the same age as me. Another cousin named Dan was two years younger. Erica, Cody, and I always hung out together at the reunion, as we were the same age. The older cousins were too grown up to bother with us, but we were too old to be stuck with the little kids. Dan was the in-between. Too old for the kindergartners, but too young for us, big and mature middle schoolers. He was funny and nice, though, so often enough we let him hang out with us. On the first day of that reunion, we did all the usual running around and swimming, but we decided that this year we would do something more daring, since we were practically grown-ups now, at least to us. To that end, we asked our cousin Bradley if there were any scary places nearby for us to explore. Bradley was kind of a jerk sometimes, but he was the youngest of the older cousins, so he was the most approachable. Besides, he was in ROTC at his high school and carried a pocket knife all the time. To us, he was pretty much as good as a space marine. Bradley acted annoyed at first, but eventually he caved and told us about a creepy, abandoned farm that bordered the campground on one side. The fields were still used for growing wheat and corn, even though the house and equipment shed were run down and dilapidated. He even told us a spooky tale of how the farmer who lived there had gone insane and started to take local children. Supposedly, he ate them. Of course, this story was completely made up just to scare us, but at the time, it seemed quite real to us. So, with visions of an insane, fang-toothed farmer in our heads, we all decided this would be a great place to explore to show that we were fearless adults. We spent the rest of the evening biding our time, and once our parents were asleep, we snuck out of our cabins and met at one of the picnic areas. Erica was there first, and I arrived just a few minutes before Cody. But Dan didn't show up for a while. Just when we thought he had chickened out on us, he finally came through, trotting down the path from the cabin. After a bit of teasing, we decided that we should go ahead and get moving if we wanted to get back in time to catch a little bit of sleep. We had all brought flashlights, and Derek had brought her new camera. She was going through a photographer phase at the time. The campground wasn't really that big, so we were able to make it to its edge on foot in just over half an hour. We jumped over the ramshackle split-rail fence bordering the campground, and we could see the old farmhouse in the distance. There was just one little problem. It was on the far side of a head-high cornfield. But we did not want this to deter us from our little investigation of the property. We began to make our way through the tall cornfield. The corn wasn't quite ready to be harvested, so it was at least green and lush but not dry and creepy. In the midst of the foliage, the air was refreshingly damp and cool as we walked. 
We whispered to one another about what we would do if we encountered the crazy farmer, and we teased one another with pokes and prods, seeing who was on edge the most, who was jumpy. We finally made it to the edge of the cornfield, and the terrain opened up into an overgrown grassy yard surrounding the single-story farmhouse and a run-down equipment shed. Rusted and neglected farm equipment lay scattered around the yard, surrounded by high grass and weeds. Hay balers, box scrapes, cedars, you name it. The place definitely had the creepy vibe we were looking for. Maybe even a little bit too much of it. We stood in silence for a moment. Then Dan and Cody both suggested we should turn back and return to the cabins, as we had seen what we came for. Erica was braver, though and she said she wanted to get some pictures of the old shed in the farmhouse. Besides, she said, with a big full moon like that in the sky, I might actually be able to see some of these pictures. If I'm honest, I was feeling a bit creeped out myself, but I did not want to look like a coward, and as we had come all this way, I figured we might as well have a look around. We headed to the equipment shed first, immediately spooking a barn owl with our lights, and all but dying of fright when it screeched at us. We poked around in the shed for a few minutes, the beams of our flashlights casting terrible shadows as they shone across the rusted tines and blades of forgotten machinery. And then we began to move towards the dilapidated house. However, as we walked, we kept hearing a rustling sound, as though somebody was moving out in the cornfield. Every time we stopped to listen... The sound stopped too, almost like it was following us. Erica was not about to be discouraged, though, so we finally made it to the house. The porch was rotted and practically falling in, and attached to the door was a slip of bright orange paper encased in heavy plastic lamination. It read, Notice of Eviction, and was dated nearly a year ago. The door was sturdy and locked, we didn't want to actually break in through one of the windows, so we circled back around the building and looked for another way inside. By now, the pacing in the cornfield had stopped, so we all began to relax a little, believing it to be a raccoon or something similar. As we rounded the corner to the back of the house, we noticed that the storm cellar doors were wide open, and we figured that would be our ticket inside. However... When we reached the gaping entrance to the cellar, we were greeted with a less than welcoming sight. The concrete floor of the cellar was covered in animal bones and shredded skins. Deer, cattle, raccoons, dogs, birds, all skeletal or mostly skeletal. Likewise, the thick wooden doors of the cellar were covered in scratches and claw marks, like something sharp had been scraping against them regularly. The grass around the entrance to the cellar was worn down, and the dirt was packed from regular traffic. Anyone who has worked in taxidermy or forensics will tell you that old bones have a very particular smell. It's not exactly the smell of death or the scent of decay. It's something else entirely, and that cellar absolutely reeked of it. The four of us stood at the entrance of the cellar, open-mouthed and shocked, we stood stone still as though that would protect us from whatever it was that lived down there. Wordlessly, Dan and Cody backed away, 
as Erica and I shone our flashlights down into the cellar, looking for any sign that there might have been something alive down there. But we saw nothing. Nothing but piles of bones and claw marks on the doors. That was more than enough to finally persuade Erica that she didn't need to get those pictures that bad. We all quickly made the decision to go back the way we came. We were debating if we should call the police, but then something stopped us in the middle of our whispered argument. A soft thud emanated from a rusted hay baler from halfway across the yard. It was followed up by the sound of something sharp scratching against metal. All of us looked at one another, exchanging a wordless, Did you hear that too? Look. We all shone our flashlights in the direction of the sound, and simultaneously, we all saw it. There on top of the rusty green baler was the shape of a large canine. It was way too big to be a coyote, and its fur was extremely dark. However, its outline was not quite right for a wolf either. Of course, it was hard to focus on anything except its piercing yellow-green eyes and the carcass of the two-point buck it held in its jaws. It didn't make any noise, no growling or snarling at all, but we understood the message it was communicating with its glare. A universal look that meant, Leave. And leave we did. The four of us all ran headlong, screaming into the cornfield, making a desperate break for the safety of the cabins. Just as I was running into the field, however, I looked over my shoulder, making sure that the beast was not following us. It wasn't, but when I looked back, what I saw was almost as unsettling. The animal had stood up. It was standing on its hind legs, now holding the deer carcass in its arms as it watched us leave. I only looked back for a second, but I know what I saw. After that, the whole memory is a blur. I returned to my cabin and bolted inside, and I remember seeing Dan and Cody running by as I was fumbling with the door, followed shortly by Erica. We weren't feeling very grown up all of a sudden. I ran to my bed in the cabin, and I hid under the sheets, eventually falling asleep. The following morning, I wasn't even sure if everything from the night before was real, or it was just a bad dream. However, when my cousins and I met up for breakfast, we all agreed that what we'd seen was real. When I mentioned that I had looked back, and I saw the monster stand up, Dan and Erica suggested that maybe it was Bradley playing a prank on us, as wolves obviously did not stand on two legs like that. The thing is, Cody then told us that when he had returned to the cabin, Bradley was sound asleep on the couch, and there was no way he could have beaten us home without us ever having seen him running ahead of us. And where the heck had he gotten such an elaborate costume? Besides, even though Bradley was a pretty big guy, fifteen years old and over six feet tall, he definitely wasn't big enough to account for the height of the thing I'd seen the night before. I don't know if any of you have ever worked with farm equipment, but a full-size round baler is a big piece of machinery, and this thing was more than half the height of the baler. It must have been seven feet tall at the very least. As these stories often say, I'm not sure what the thing was that I saw, 
But to this day, whenever I talk to my cousin Erica, the subject of that night almost always comes up. She says her biggest regret is not stopping to take a picture of that basement full of bones, or the creature as it stood silhouetted against the brilliant light of the summer moon. But I always tell her that she did the right thing by just running away. The four of us have never told the rest of our family about our experiences there, and the farmhouse and outbuildings have since been torn down. Most of my family from that area has either died or moved away now, so we don't have the yearly reunions anymore. But I'll never forget what I saw that night, and if I ever go back, I'll be sure to be armed. After all, who knows if that thing is still out there? If you ever go out walking in the woods and farmland of the Upper Peninsula, take heed. There's something out there with claws, teeth, and a hell of a lot of fur. It walks on two legs, and when you meet it, it might be hungry, and it might just take you to its cellar. Warning. This story contains graphic depictions of hurt animals. I went camping when I was younger. From All Calm, 1999. This started when I used to live in a small town in Arkansas. It had a population of around 5,000. It was your average conservative town. In the summers, it was hot and humid. In the winter, it was dark and cold. I grew up on southern entertainment, driving four-wheelers, hunting every deer season, maybe even laying a bit of trapping here and there. This story occurred my last year of high school. I would have been 17 at the time. I had plenty of friends, a great girlfriend, and an old shabby 1972 F-100 Ford pickup. Of course, I've still got the pickup to this day. It was November, rifle season, and I'd been preparing for it for a while. My friend Drew and I had been planning this trip, and we had everything ready. It was Friday, the end of the week, and the start of the weekend. Our plan was to hike up through the National Forest onto the mountain, and then set up camp, and just have a great time. I woke at three in the morning, leaving a note for my parents, and putting my things in the bed of my truck. I hopped in and drove to my friend's house. When I arrived, he was already waiting on the porch. He placed his bag in the bed of the truck, then put the gun in the truck. After that, we took off to the mountain. We entered onto the turn that went through to the entrance of the hiking site. The change from road to dirt was just as familiar as ever. We stopped and got out, carrying our bags and heading up the mountain trail. It was around seven. Thanks to the sun shining over the trees, we were able to see where we were going easily. The birds were chirping, and I could see plenty of squirrels, running through the trees and chattering at one another. About three hours of hiking later, we came up to the campsite that we followed with our map. As we arrived, we began to quickly set up tarps, and we were quick to find firewood and start a good fire. I told my friend that I would get us some lunch, and I headed off with my rifle to go get something to eat. I walked for at least half a mile south, when I found myself breaking the tree line. I decided I'd sit and watch for a bit. 
I sat underneath a large oak and looked for any movement. The sun was rising slowly. I was sitting there when all the birds stopped for a moment. The silence became deafening. There was a sharp ringing in my ear. It was so eerie. I began to slowly scan my surroundings, making sure to stay as still as possible. I noticed then that there was a deer standing at the other side of the field. It was hard to make out. I slowly raised my rifle and looked down the hill. I only saw its head and neck from where I was. I knew that if I risked a shot then, that I wouldn't have another chance to bag another deer with a better shot. Regardless, it was a doe anyway. That's when I noticed something else. The deer's head was higher off the ground than most deer should be capable of, and it moved unnaturally. It turned to the left, and I could hear leaves crunching as it moved deep into the dark forest. I was a little bit unsettled, so I decided to head back to camp and be handed. I followed the mental landmarks that I saw the first time. I fallen over a tree, dried up creek bed. Soon I could see the tarps in the distance through the trees. When I made it back to the campsite, we fiddled around for the rest of the day, shot up some rabbits, and later we decided that it was time to catch some sleep. I crawled into my tent, admittedly exhausted, and got into my sleeping bag. It didn't take long for sleep to come. We got up early the next morning. It was still as eerie as it was the day before, and felt so desolate. Again, the animals were quiet, just utter silence. It was strange, because the air felt heavy, too. There weren't even birds today. No deer, no rabbits or anything. We went our separate ways. We were getting hungry, and when the sun set, we had been nestled down waiting for some game to come around. It was getting dark again fast. We met back up later, and were forced to eat some of the cans of beans that we had packed, just in case we had nothing to shoot. As we ate in quiet, Drew got up from his seat and said to me, I'll be right back. Gotta take a pass. I stayed there drinking some water, watching the fire dance rapidly. As the minutes passed by, I grew painfully aware that Drew had been gone for a long time. I was starting to get concerned. But then I began to hear leaves crunching. I looked towards the sound and out came Drew, but his face was ghostly pale. He simply told me to follow him. What's going on, man? I asked. But he kept insisting without an answer. I got up to follow him into the woods as he asked. We walked what I can assume about forty yards when I got a waft of something foil, something repugnant. It got stronger and stronger the farther we walked. The smell grew so bad that when something fell on my shoulder I breathed in a smell of it, and the reek of death made my stomach churn. I bent over and vomited, causing whatever fell on me to fall on the forest floor. I pulled out my light and pointed it at the ground. I was dumbfounded. There was blood dripping on me from above. Shaking and hesitant, I slowly panned my flashlight up. 
There were parts of animal hanging above us all over the place. Organs, limbs, pieces of everything and anything placed in the trees. There was a squirrel hung on the branch, impaled by one of the wooden outcrops. I looked at Drew, still drained of all color. Together we bolted back to camp. I grabbed my rifle, gathered some things. Then we stopped in the middle of the campsite and looked at each other. Confused, terrified. What were we going to do in a situation like this? We sat down to collect ourselves for a few seconds. We began to shove our food and things back into the trail packs. And as we did, we began to hear crunching a few yards away from us. I pulled out my mag light and pointed it towards where we heard the sound. We were about eight yards away from where we heard it. I flicked on the flashlight. There wasn't anything there. With some relief, we lowered our guns. But, not a second later, a grotesque and elongated hand came from around a tree in front of us. We didn't wait. We sprinted down the hill, phasing in and out of running or jogging, doing the absolute most at any given moment that our bodies would allow. My lungs were burning, legs were stinging, but I kept running. I would glance back and check on Drew and how close he was behind me. I turned off my flashlight, so did Drew, and we laid up against a tree as still as possible. I could see Drew's icy breaths in the moonlight, my eyes finally adjusted to the dark. I saw it, an arm long and bony covered in blood. Long fingers with unkempt nails that were curved. It was grabbing on to Drew's shoulder, and Drew had begun screaming. The moment I reacted, the arm began to drag him across the forest floor. I sat there frozen, unable to do more than just flinch as I watched. He kept screaming until it all stopped. His screaming stopped. The sounds of my friend struggling stopped. It was all just silence again. I picked myself up and ran, but I tripped over something, falling downhill for a bit before slamming against a tree. I stopped. My back was hurting and I had twisted my ankle before the fall. It was quiet again. There were no crickets, nothing but silence. My eyes already adjusted to the dark so I could see through the woods kind of well. So I laid as still as possible and observed. Before long, I heard leaves shuffling, and I saw that thing moving through the woods. It was strange and jagged and tense. It moved in a way that was so unnatural, like every millimeter of movement was indescribable in pain to the creature. It was just wrong, but it was long and thin, Bones rubbing up against its skin from the inside, as if it was malnourished. I couldn't make out everything at first, but as it got closer, it put its face to the ground and began to sniff the forest floor, sniffing for me. I got a good look at its face then, its features. It was scary. Its chin was elongated and had small, beady eyes. There were dark circles of skin around them, and the skin was darkish gray. 
Its mouth was large, and it spread all the way across its face. It had its teeth bared, all dragon and broken-looking. Its eyes were bright yellow, and they looked like they glowed. Its mouth and nose, or what was a nose, I think, was covered in a red fluid. It trailed down and covered its torso. I was ten yards away from it then. It sniffed a bit, turned to me, and began to crawl on all fours towards me. I smelled it then. It smelled of roadkill. I vomited in my mouth, but I swallowed it back down, too scared to move. I prayed that it hadn't actually found me yet. I knew I had to keep absolutely still. I laid there for God knows how long as it crawled about, searching for me. I couldn't take it much longer. I stood up slowly, grabbing my bag. I turned and slung it into the woods. Then, the moment it hit the ground, I ran for it. I ran for the parking lot as quickly as I could. I could hear the shrill and deep screech of that thing as it realized that the bag was not its target. But I kept running. I didn't recognize anything at first until I ran into a sign that said National Forest. I heard the same screech but kept going until I made it to the truck. I flung the door open, jumped inside and started it. I peeled out when I hit the gas slinging gravel all over the parking lot. As I sped away, I looked back and saw it there, standing in the parking lot light, now shown in detail, standing around nine feet tall. Eyes full of hatred, or was it hunger? I looked forward and put the pedal to the floor. I tore off down the side road and onto the highway. When I was able to sigh with relief... I looked in the mirror. My clothes were shredded and ripped. I was covered in dirt and a bit of blood. I scratched my head, then floored it to the next police station. It took them a while to get me to calm down enough to not scream. I managed to get some game wardens and police officers together the next day. They scaled the mountain, looking for Drew. But I never saw him again. A long time after that, my grandfather came down and talked to me. He explained a few things for me, told me that people had been going missing and getting kidnapped there since the 1800s, and that he's seen the thing that's been doing it himself. It's been eight years since I last saw Drew. Not a day goes by that I don't think of him. He was my best friend. Take my story as a warning. If you ever go camping, always take a weapon to protect yourself. And for God's sake, do not underestimate the stories you've heard about things that happen out there. Or it might happen. The Beast of here. Crystal Creek From Harry K. This happened August 2nd of 2019. I've no idea what we encountered. And I'm sharing with you not only to warn you, but also to get some information about what we might have seen. Feel free to judge for yourself. It was the morning of August 2nd. For two days now, my significant other and I 
who I'll refer to as S.O., had been camping far inland from Mueller State Park, a fair bit from Green Mountain Falls, right on the edge of Crystal Creek, located in central Colorado. It was a remote location which needed a good hike to get to. We had our tent set up at the edge of a circular clearing in the woods, which had about a 10-meter diameter, with trees enclosing all sides except for a small break where a path was. As I got out of the tent, my SO was sitting just outside, taking in the morning air. Immediately, she retched and said that it smelled of blood. I took a big whiff, too. It was heavy ozone and overpoweringly coppery, probably prefixed to a storm, I said. We thought nothing of it after that and began preparing our tent ration breakfast. Six hours later in the afternoon, we decided we wanted to make a proper fire. Making sure our tent was sealed up, we opted to forage in the woods for appropriate kindling and decently sized stones to reflect the heat. We were only about 45 meters from camp when odd things began to happen. At this point, the coppery smell was completely faded, and so when it came back so suddenly, we noticed it right away. The air grew heavy as the smell became overpowering. Me and my S.O. both tried to cover our noses with our shirts, but it really didn't help. We continued collecting for the fire, fighting through the urge to gag on the smell. A few minutes later, we heard something. Maybe ten meters away from us, there was rushing, like an animal moving quickly, and also this weird noise. It sounded like someone or something jittering their voice while mid-laugh. If you want a reference to search, try Peter Griffin's laugh, only in monotone. It was much deeper, too. Almost distorted, like it was coming from strained vocal cords. The animal was fast, and it seemed to be darting around in the undergrowth right beyond our eyesight. From the way the brush moved and the sound, it seemed large, too. My SO was terrified, and so was I, afraid of a potentially dangerous and weird-sounding animal. We began to walk quickly back to the camp, preparing to drop our stones and wood to run if necessary. The noise seemed to always stay close by, but never close enough to see what was making it. As we got into the clearing, it seemed to stop altogether. We were both shaken up by this, but we assumed it to be an animal we didn't have much experience with. We didn't lose much of our material on the rush back, so we began assembling a small fire pit. The rest of the afternoon was uneventful, and when night came, we headed inside before it got too dark. A while after we fell asleep, maybe around two in the morning, my SO got up, and I woke up as well. I heard her crawling outside. Then she started yelling at me. Babe, come here. What are you doing? This chilled me to the bone, as I was obviously right behind her in the tent. I turned my phone's flashlight on and called her name. She turned around, and when she saw me, her face went white. What? How are you inside? You just called me from outside the tent. She grew even more pale and started shaking. I knew she was terrified. I quickly rose and pulled her inside the tent. What are you talking about? I've been inside the whole time. No one's out there. 
She looked petrified. Then she said, Harry, you're out there. I was beyond horrified. She was completely convinced that someone who sounded exactly like me was calling to her from the woods. Despite being afraid, I knew I had to appear confident, so I didn't heighten my partner's now extreme anxiety. I grabbed a flashlight and small hunting knife from my backpack. I really am not skilled with weapons, but I thought it might be intimidating enough to ward off whatever was out there, especially if it's just some people trying to scare us for fun. I calmed her down, telling her everything would be okay and that I would go to check. I left the tent, flashlight and knife in hand. I still regret not just staying in there and sleeping the night away. When I exited into the clearing, I did a quick scan with my flashlight. I didn't see anything at first, but then, looking down, I noticed something odd. All the stones around the fire pit were moved, thrown about the camp clearing in seemingly random order. When I noticed this, I bent down to pick up one of the stones. It was extremely hot to the touch, despite the fire being out for a few hours. As I kneeled, examining the stone, the copper smell suddenly filled my nostrils again, far stronger than any time previous. Then, I heard a voice coming from right in front of me, just in the darkness, opposite the direction of the tent. In my exact voice and tone and inflection, it spoke the words I said to my S.O. seconds before. Don't worry, honey. Everything is fine. A sudden cold came over me, the type of cold that washes over you when you knew you really messed up. Without thinking, I raised my flashlight up. There stood the most horrific thing I'd ever encountered. It was huge. I'm about five foot ten, and this thing had at least two feet on me. It was an extremely decayed, tortured-looking elk, but its body was long as if it had been stretched. Parts of its skin were falling off or missing, and it had a distinctive servine skull formation. Its body was draped in a loose brown dirty tarp, and it was horribly skinny, with skin and flesh missing around the ribs completely. I didn't dare examine it more. I began to winch backwards, breathless, nearly paralyzed, and then the beast suddenly emitted a blood-curdling, high-pitched scream and just runs off out of the clearing. I heard leaves and branches break for a good few minutes before it finally left earshot. Only then did I return to the tent, trembling, trying to calm myself. My S.O. was on the verge of breaking down, and so, naturally, I didn't tell her the truth. I told her that I just saw a deer, and that we surprised each other, causing the thing to scream. I reiterated that there was nothing outside to be afraid of, and we both went to sleep. Or tried to, anyway. I'm pretty sure both of us spent the entire night pretending to rest, all the while terrified of every stray noise we'd heard outside the tent. As soon as daylight struck, we packed up and left, and as we did, I got a good look at the pattern the stones were in. 
They created a narrow arch that perfectly resembled a crescent moon, bending around where our tent was at its axis. Sufficed to say, I never have been more terrified than that night in the woods. I still have no idea what I encountered, but maybe someone who hears this story will. Whatever it was, I hope it's native Crystal Creek, Colorado. And if you happen to be planning a camping trip down there anytime soon, I'd pick somewhere else if I were you. Good luck, and stay safe. Something Awful on a School Camping Trip From Louie The school I'm in, we go on camping trips four times a year. Two at the beginning and two towards the end. This camping trip was the third one of that year. The crew of eleven people headed out on Tuesday to set up camp. We found a very gorgeous campsite that was near the river. It was peaceful, but ended up far from it. The weirdness happened on the very first night when literally everyone woke up from nightmares. That is, eleven people all having nightmares on the same night and waking up from them. It was crazy and obviously creepy. We brushed it off and moved on with the day. As we were getting ready for the day, I kept seeing glimpses of people out of the corner of my eyes. I thought I was just seeing things. We went through the day and got back to camp at around 6 p.m. We had dinner, then everyone settled into their own worlds. I ended up going to bed around 9. But I woke up at 1.34 a.m. At first I thought I had to go to the bathroom but then I heard them. It was three of my friends that had recently passed in the last two years. Their deaths were very hard on me, and hearing their voices out of nowhere scared and tormented me. I curled up into a ball and cried while they kept saying, Louie, come here. Come with us, Louie. This went on for what felt like hours until I finally worked up the courage to wake my best friend up. He was sleeping in the same tent as me. He knows me very well and can help calm me down no matter what. I woke him, crying my heart out to him. He got up, talked to me, kept me company until I calmed down. But after that, I had the urgent need to go to the bathroom. But of course, I was far too scared to go by myself. My friend got up with me, and we went over to the outhouse. After I did my business, I walked out to see my friend staring up at the sky. I asked what he was looking at, and he pointed up at the moon. I looked up, and as soon as I did, I felt this wave of nausea hit. I threw up my dinner immediately, but that snapped my friend out of his trance of the moon. After I was done, we jogged back to the tent, and we remained there until I fell asleep. I have no clue what was in those woods, but it was dark, and I think it was evil. My friend has told me that ever since that trip, he has had trouble sleeping. He sees and hears things at night. We have no idea what's happening, but whatever was out there that night, it probably came home with us. Backyard Camping from Michael131 
I don't remember how old I was. I believe I was seven years old. We had just moved in next door to my neighbor, whom we've known for about 15 years and was basically family. It was the 4th of July. I just got back from Wyoming. We had asked our neighbor if we could gather a bunch of our friends and camp in her backyard. She said yes, so we set up some tents and watched the fireworks before heading to our tents for the night. Sometime during the night, my sister had gotten up to go to the bathroom. She soon came back, seemingly uneventful. Later that evening, we heard huffing noises outside the tent. Mind you, bears around our parts in a rural village in Ohio, we don't have a dense enough forest to house bears. Usually it's just coyotes and deer and smaller predators. But it was a full moon, so we could see pretty well. Just outside the tents, it was a well-lit field. Keep this in mind, the footsteps and huffing noises kept circling the tents, and everyone heard it. As it approached my tent, I made out the unmistakable figure of a bear, seemingly searching for food or other scavengeable products. All of us were unarmed, as the massive creature began to paw and bite at the tent, easily creating ribbons out of the tent nylon. I'm not sure if it knew I was inside the tent but it definitely wanted inside. Suddenly, one of my friends screamed, and the thing bounded away before it could get all the way in. This was terrifying. Imagine growing up in an area where bears don't exist, only to wake up in the middle of the night in a tent as one begins to chew through the wall. I'm so glad it was able to be scared away. Apparently, it wasn't that hungry. If you're wondering where the bear came from, it was apparently an escaped bear from a local zoo, and it just happened to come our way. The Little Girl From Burgherder I was visiting some of my girlfriend's friends in her hometown of Rock Creek, British Columbia, Canada. It's one of those kinds of towns that has a gas station, a restaurant and a bar, and a couple of local shops. Very little there. Her family owns an acreage there consisting of a long driveway, a kind of run-down house, a shop, and a small animal enclosure with barns. It was summer and gets very warm that time of year in the area, so we decided to set up a tent on the deck of the shop and sleep outside. The shop is two stories so the deck is fairly high up. We spent the day with her friend. It was getting late, so we decided to go set up our makeshift camp. Her friend said she may come by at some point and hang out later, so off we went back to the property. When we got there, it was a bit windy, but it was a clear summer night. We set up a propane fire pit and just hung out for a bit. It got dark, and we were tired from traveling that day, so we went to bed figuring her friend decided not to come. This is when things got weird. Not more than ten minutes after being in bed, we heard a girl laughing in the distance. It was close enough it sounded like it was from the driveway area. We assumed her friend came up after all, so we crawled out of our tents and set up the chairs again. We waited, and no one came around. We chalked it up to the wind. We get back into bed and not more than ten minutes goes by before we hear it again. This girl laughing sounded closer this time, 
By now, we were creeped out, so we didn't want to investigate. I know most people want the juicy tale of some grotesque sight, but screw that. I was not going out there. After the second time, we didn't hear it again, and we eventually fell asleep, still blaming the wind. The following day, we mentioned the story to her dad. He told us a tale about some years back, before he bought the farm in the 70s. There was a family that lived there, a man, his wife, and daughter. The daughter was apparently killed in a farming accident. She was backed over by a tractor. I've been to the property since, but I'll never go back at night. After hearing that story, I'm glad I stayed in the tent. Now that you've heard some creepy camping stories, you're probably one happy camper. But if you don't take these stories as cautionary tales, you might wind up a dead one. Remember, when you hear someone crying or laughing in the middle of the night, when you hear your friend's voice calling you, even though they're right next to you, don't leave your tent. Because that thin nylon wall is your last line of defense against the world of horror and mystery that is the woods. Good night. If you enjoyed this episode of Darkness Prevails, be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe. If you have a story of your own you want to narrate it, share it with us at darkstories.org. If you want to support the show, check the links below. There's a link to my podcast, a link to donate to my Patreon, a link to my merch store where we have creepy shirts, and a link to start investing with acorns, which helps me out a little bit too. Now, as usual, here are my five favorite early comments from the previous episode about three middle-of-nowhere scary stories. Angel Nicole says, Can you do scary school stories? Heck yeah. It's been a while since I've done that. I've been on a countryside-slash-wilderness kick for a while, but I can definitely go back to school stories. Sir Lucas says, I'm in the middle of nowhere right now. Thanks, Darko. Nice. I tried to rent a cabin where I live, but the GPS took us way, way, way out in the middle of nowhere and there was nothing there, so that was creepy. Just some Bigfoot with internet access says, We Bigfoots have entered the chat. Sweet. Send us some furry lewds, please. Mo says, I miss the outro music. Sad face. Well, I've been trying to use that music less and less. All the music I use that comes from that source is risky. If there ever comes a day where I can't afford the subscription for that music, every single video that used any of the music from there would instantly get claimed. What a bad day that would be. Rachel Shipton says, If the middle of nowhere is anywhere like they have encouraged the cowardly dog, I wouldn't like to go. I don't know. I think I'd love to go visit Courage, Eustace, and Muriel. It'd be a great, creepy, life-or-death time. Well, that brings us to the end of this Darkness Prevails episode. But don't you worry, because more scary stories are on the way soon, so stay tuned. Until next time, here are the credits to my amazing patrons who continue to donate. They're great people. Remember, stay safe out there, and stay creepy, because this world is a strange one.
Believe it or not, most towns in America are small towns. You might see New York represented in movies and TV, California discussed in newspapers and tabloids constantly. But sometimes foreigners fail to realize that America is absolutely massive, and a fair bulk of us live in small, unheard-of towns, just trying to get by, until some hairy mountain monster comes down and devours us. Hey, it's not the best life, but it's what we've been given. Enjoy these five allegedly true scary stories from small towns. If you have a story of your own, be sure to share it with us at darkstories.org. Now, let's begin. School Lockdown from Anonymous I was 12 years old and in the 7th grade. I should probably mention here that the middle school is across the street from the elementary school. The population of our town was slightly above a thousand, so it was enough to have a school district. It was the day before winter break, and it was snowing lightly outside. I was in my 8th period class, which was algebra. My teacher let us have free time, as we did all of our exams for the semester already. Besides, it was the last period before winter break started, and everyone was antsy. My classmates and I were having a good time doing whatever we wanted, until the principal's voice came over the loudspeaker. This is a red lockdown alert. Red lockdown. My teacher and my classmates were freaking out, because red lockdown means that an intruder has gained access to the school and is actively armed. My teacher shushed us into the corner and locked the door, telling us to be quiet. The teacher ended up breaking down and crying as soon as she did this. We knew then that this was no drill. She ended up telling us that the elementary school across the street is having a lockdown too. Some kids were already injured. Apparently, the assailant had gone there first. We would later learn that 20 other children and teachers would be injured here in our own school. I remember shivering, terrified. I didn't think something like this could happen to us. I prayed that the intruder would not find us. I prayed that myself or someone that I cared about did not get hurt. It was one of the first times I remember realizing that life is fragile and that the people around me could be taken away from me at any moment. And then I heard it, a deep voice telling us to open the door, as someone began to bang on it, rattling the doorknob. I could tell he was trying his hardest to break down that door with his body weight, but luckily, it was sturdy. I should probably mention here that the windows on every classroom door are bulletproof. That's the standard now. After a dozen failed attempts to break in, he tried to open up the door by firing at the window. But all that did was ricochet the bullet from the window. We heard the guy curse from his frustration. He was grunting and anger and began to march down the hall to the next classroom. He didn't have a target. He was just trying to get into any door he could. After a few minutes, a SWAT team came and opened the door, escorting us out of the building. 
they tracked down the man in the school, which was easy enough because his footprints were covered in snow from outside. It was chilling to the bone outside, but thankfully, they quickly found the man and escorted him away. He gave every kid he saw a stare of anger and malice. I knew that at that moment, the weather wasn't the thing causing me to shiver. My parents ended up picking me up. They were crying hysterically. I could tell that this was something they had feared before. I can't imagine being a parent, hearing about all these school lockdown incidents all over the country, and wondering if or when it could happen to your own child. Our small town was devastated by the attack. A website was created for donations of the 20 victims of the attack. Everyone came out okay. No lives were actually taken that day, and everyone came back from their injuries. But there's a memory in my head that I've created, one birthed by paranoia and fear. A false memory of the horrors that could have happened if the man had gotten inside. Home Alone Horror Story From Anonymous I was nine years old when this happened. I lived in a small town in Ohio. The house we lived in at the time was about 40 years old, had those creepy, creaky stairs. It was rusting and rotting all over. The incident happened around 11.20 one night. I was, of course, home alone at the time. Out of nowhere, I heard a big bang sound, like someone was smashing their entire body weight or an object against the door. Immediately after, I heard footsteps circling around the back door before someone's hand tried the doorknob. But because the house was rotting, the doorknob gave way, and the door literally fell from its hinges without much force, hitting the wood floor with a loud boom. I held my breath out of fear and pure terror. My nine-year-old self imagined what the intruder was going to do to me, was he going to hurt me, take me away from my family? I could even picture the incident on the news tomorrow, a headline like, Young Boy Taken, Presumed Dead. Maybe I was being overdramatic, but again, I was only nine at the time. Soon after, I began to hear drawers, cabinets, and doors being thrown open, stuff being moved around, some of it being taken. That's when I quickly remembered that my bedroom door did not have a lock on it, and I did not have any weapons to defend myself. Plus, I was too young for a cell phone, so the only phone was downstairs. All I could do was hope and pray that the intruder did not find me. I began to hear some heavy footsteps making their way upstairs. The intruder then placed their hand on my doorknob. The door began to creak open. A silhouette began to form in my doorway. A moment before I could make out who it was, what they looked like, I began to hear screaming outside, multiple voices, as well as sirens. I cowered in the corner. I heard heavy, frantic footsteps running back downstairs and outside. Adults continued to shout until I heard my name amongst the shouting. 
I was carried outside by a police officer. There I saw the neighborhood and my family waiting for me. It was only by chance that when this man broke into the house, a neighbor saw him and immediately called the police. Just think about that. If that neighbor hadn't been looking towards my house at the right time, I could be dead. That was definitely my creepiest experience. Hadley Jack from Howard There's a couple of stories I'd like to share about the small town I grew up in, which have really been playing on my mind recently. To give you some background, I still live in the town. I'm actually a solicitor and a town counselor, so I can't mention it to any of my associates, but everyone who lives in my town knows there's something going on. Call me Howard. The town in question is Hadley in England. Hadley is an ancient settlement with a long and distinguished history, but also some dark, dark days. Many tourists visit the quaint medieval shops or gothic church. You can also take a walk up the Gallows Hill, where the old town gallows used to stand. It's the principal location for this tale. In the early 1700s, the town hangman was a strange individual named Jack Partridge. He was strange-looking with gangly limbs and beady eyes. He had been the butt of many jokes when he grew up, but was much feared once he took up the job as hangman. It was said that he'd always wanted the job, practicing knots and eventually persuaded the previous hangman to take him on as an apprentice. When the previous hangman killed himself on his very own gallows, Jack was elevated to position of hangman himself at the tender age of 16, making him the youngest hangman in all of England. In light of what you're about to hear, you may be wondering whether the old hangman's passing was his own demise, or whether someone had a hand in it. Well, everything was fine in that sleepy town for some years, and from time to time when a local criminal was found guilty for a heinous crime, it was always remarked upon how proficiently Jack Partridge undertook his services. Many people even visited to watch his proceedings. However, after a time it became notable that increasing significant crimes were occurring in the area, and each time the person or persons responsible vehemently denied their crimes, but there was always some piece of persuasive evidence which resulted in guilty charges. Whatever the town council did, irrespective of how many hangings were ordered, crimes seemed to be on the rise. A couple of years after this dangerous trend started, another alarming trend emerged. Every Halloween, there would be a killing. The first was in 1720 when a young woman named Mary Clark returned to her cottage one night and was disturbed to find a stick figure hanging from the porch above her front door. In the morning, she was found dead, hanging from the rafters. In the following years, the pattern emerged. A strange stick figure would always be the prelude to a death every Halloween. Even when people realized the significance of the figure and often took refuge in neighbors' houses, 
they would nonetheless be found dead by morning. Finally, after much slaughter, chance intervened. A local girl named Matilda Groom was found hanged. One of her neighbors, Sarah Rand, claimed she had seen Jack Partridge leaving the property early in the morning. The magistrate and his men quickly attended Gibbet Cottage, where Jack lived on the edge of town. There they found him. An inspection of the house discovered a cache of stick figures. This was proof enough, and Jack was taken from the house, marched straight to the town gallows. There he was, tied to the gallows, and a fire was built around him. To the shrieks and delight of the town, he was killed. In his death throes, he cursed the town and its residents, claiming that he would return and take his vengeance. It was reckoned later that Jack had developed a lust for killing. Once his regular flow of prisoners stopped being enough, he contrived to get townsfolk convicted of crimes so that he had more to hang. But his bloodlust increased, and he began his own reign of killing terror. For a while, after these events, Hadley became famous, and people began to visit the town, the location of the notorious story. Jack Partridge became forever immortalized in the children's rhyme and game, Hadley Jack. In this popular English playground game, one child represents Jack and has his back turned, while the other children have to creep up on him, chanting, Welcome back, Hadley Jack. At some point, the child playing Jack spins around screaming Jack's back and begins to chase the others. Well, now to my experience. I was in my teens, working a pizza delivery job. We got a lot of prank calls back then, and as you'd figure, Halloween was a particularly bad time for this. So when I was asked to take a delivery of a 12-inch Tex-Mex stuffed crust to Gibbet Cottage, I thought it was likely a hoax. Gibbet Cottage was a wrecked cottage at the end of a deserted lane and was believed to be the original hangman's cottage for our town. No one had lived there for decades, but my boss insisted it was a genuine call, and after all, perhaps someone was finally doing it up. When I arrived, I was surprised to see the cottage looked recently renovated, and there was even smoke rising from the chimney. Though I was slightly disturbed to see a stick figure hanging from the door knocker, but I quickly reminded myself it was Halloween, after all. The chap who answered the door was very tall and ungainly-looking. He had piercing eyes which seemed to follow you around the room and freaked me out. I happened to mention that I didn't know that anyone lived in the cottage. He said that he was simply visiting and had a job to do that night in town. This all sounded strange, and I wasn't going to hang around long, so I handed him the pizza and he thrust a quantity of coins in my hand. Like I said, I was in a hurry to get away, so I simply thanked him, didn't even bother to count and check the money. When I got back, my boss was furious. All the coins turned out to be extremely old and not even proper currency. The following day, when I told a friend about it all, he said that we should go check out the house, so we drove back in daylight I was amazed to see the cottage all tumbled down like before, with no roof and no sign of life at all. 
The following shift at Pizza Hut, I handed in my notice. Besides looking for bigger and better things, delivery was just too much of a creepy, unpredictable mess. But I have a second experience. A couple of years ago, I was walking home on a Halloween. I'd been to a town council meeting, which had gotten quite rowdy, and the beer had been flowing. I was pretty desperate to use the bathroom at one point, so I went into a wooded area and did my business. Once I'd done my business, I retraced my steps out of the wood, coming face to face with a stick figure dangling at about head height. I freaked out. I didn't remember it being there. I've traveled this part of the woods before. I immediately thought of the stories of Hadley Jack, and I was scared. That whole night, I expected something to happen to me. I was afraid that I wouldn't see daylight. Fortunately, I'm here to tell my story still. Considering I was alive in the morning, I was actually beginning to think the legend was just toothless. Until I went into my office the following day, when I discovered that the photocopier was not working, despite it being new. I laughed and thought, if anything... Hadley Jack was finding new ways to take out his revenge. I have one more story. One day I was mucking around online. I came across a family tree website and decided to research my family. Anyone out there who's done the same thing usually winds up discovering their family's pretty dull. That's how mine started too, until I began to notice some pretty scary coincidences. The first thing I noticed that I was related to Sarah Rand. You may recall she was the person who implicated Jack Partridge. The next thing I noticed was that Sarah Rand died the following year. The date of her death was the 31st of October of 1736. In fact, I began to see that an alarming number of my family died on October 31st. Now, I don't believe in legends, but every time I wake up on November 1st these days, I think to myself, well, I've made it through another year. Mothman in Ohio, from Zachariah Even though it's the summer of 2019, I think the Mothman is still here. I used to live in Florida, but moved in with my father, who lives in a small town along the Ohio River. When I moved in, I was mostly homesick for my old place, under the weather, so I stayed inside and watched through the windows at all the new animals that I'd get to see here. Now where we live, the neighbors keep to themselves and don't really socialize. One day, I sat down watching the birds and rodents outside. Now, there is a large widow-maker in the yard, and it had been calm all day. As I was eating, I looked out the window and noticed all the animals were gone. Then some branches began to fall in the yard. I blamed it on the harsh wind, but when I looked around, none of the other trees or bushes were swaying at all. Puzzled, I went back to eating and went to watch TV. Later that night, I filled up my water bottle. And as I did so, I looked out the window above the sink, talking to my father. As I finished, I saw these two red objects in the window, 
a little confused. I asked him if there was anything outside that could reflect red like that. He said no. I laughed, saying, Ah, must be some critter, then. That's when I saw what I now assumed to be red eyes one last time in the Widowmaker tree from earlier. I didn't even realize I was staring for so long until my father interrupted me and said that my stepmom almost hit an animal and swerved off the road into a ditch. We needed to go pick her up. Now I've heard legends and myths, and I know the Mothman is considered a bad omen. So, a bit freaked out, I shut all the blinds and went to bed. But not before seeing that thing flapping its massive wings, before fading off into the sky. That was an old bird, way too big, and the timing was too perfect. What was that? From J. Ion. I spent the first six years of my life in a neighborhood for working-class people that was made of very old apartment buildings in a small town in Malaysia. The buildings were constructed 50 years ago and were upgraded since, so the exterior of the buildings had a neglected look. Rusty metal installments, dented roofs, Brown and black stains on the walls from years of exposure to rain and wind. Peeling paint and plants growing in the cracks and crevices. The worst part of it all, the inside of the buildings were infested with rats and cockroaches and a myriad of other insects and critters that should belong in a sewer, not in the walls and ceilings of family homes with young, vulnerable children. To make things even worse, living in a tropical country, thunderstorms are regular occurrences, which affect the supply of electricity to homes, and sometimes entire provinces, due to lightning strikes and damage to old grid lines. Because of the lack of upkeep, coupled with the vermin infestation and bad weather, the power grid for my neighborhood gets cut off at least once a month, plunging every household into darkness at night, and uncomfortable humidity and heat in the tropical climate. Whenever this happened, my family would leave their bedrooms and just sleep on the living room floor. It was the most aerated and cool area in the whole apartment, despite the lack of functioning fans and air conditioning. One such night was no different. My entire family was asleep in the living room because a particularly powerful thunderstorm was slamming down on the province. Coupled with extremely strong winds, it was as loud as police sirens blaring, just 20 meters in front of you. Yet, my entire family was sound asleep. We were used to it. I remember it being past midnight when my eyes opened wide. I looked to my right at the entrance of the living room, which was a sliding glass door attached to a balcony. I remember hearing the loud wind howling, and the door and windows vibrating in resistance against the wind's strength. But there was something else at the door... It moved in tandem with the intensity and frequency of the wind, pushing against the glass door when the wind picked up. And it was quiet. No sound came from it, other than the times it pushed itself against the glass, with the increasing and decreasing intensity of wind. I was horrified, but I stayed silent. I didn't want it to know that I was awake, that I was looking in its direction. I stared at it trying to break into my home for about three minutes. 
The whole time I was imagining what death by this creature would be like. This creature definitely was no living being, or didn't resemble any. The creature had a head that looked like it was decomposing, with flaking gray skin, pink-purple-brown patches with little gray and white hairs around the mostly bald top, and a lumpy face that looked bruised and gangrenous at the same time. But the worst part was the body, or lack thereof. Where the torso and limbs should have been was instead a dangling bunch of equally decomposed lumps, with the same colors as the skin on the creature's head. What I supposed are its entrails had less mobility than the head, but the entrails did slam very hard against the glass door when the creature rammed its head out of frustration and desperation after trying in vain to get into the living room for several minutes. Surprisingly, my family did not wake up, despite the loud sound the creature was making, trying to break the door. As the winds died down, it gave up slamming itself against the door. Instead, it stayed silent and still while looking into the living room. That's when I realized it was basically floating. There was nothing beneath the dangling lumps and nothing above its head. Somehow, I fell asleep after this realization, or maybe I fell unconscious from fright. In the morning, my parents woke me up for breakfast. I told them not to open the living room door in a panic, because there was a monster trying to get into the house. And that's when I turned my head and looked at the glass door in absolute horror, as it was already wide open. But the sun was up. It was a bright and beautiful morning, and I could hear birds chirping with a gentle breeze sweeping leaves away in the background. My parents smiled at me, said that it was just a bad dream, and that I have an overactive imagination. I didn't argue with them because I believed everything my parents said to me when I was little. Almost a decade later, after my family moved to a much better neighborhood, I was allowed to use a computer. I eventually found articles written about indigenous mythical creatures and folklore in Southeast Asia. Apparently, the creature I saw matched a penangal, which means literally the remover in my native Malay language. It's a creature born out of a black magic practitioner who has to remove her head and organs from her body to go hunting for fresh blood at night. Before daybreak, the Penangal has to reattach its head and organs with its body, or it will perish from the slightest exposure to sunlight, as it is considered an affront to God due to its unnatural form and to prevent damage to its organs. Based on what I've read on this creature, it's always female and its long hair, glowing red eyes, fangs, and blood dripping from its dangling organs give it away. Yet the creature I saw trying to get into my family's living room did not match all of those features. Besides the floating head and entrails, it was different in the other aspects, such as the lack of discernible eyes or mouth, and the fact that the creature I saw looked more like a balding male, and its supposed organs looked like five-year-old air-dried meat. So was the Penangal that tried to enter my home an exception to the role for the Malay undead, or was that an entirely different creature? 
creepy folklore ghouls, unexpected intruders, and life-and-death struggles. Who knew just how terrifying it could be to live in a small town? But maybe they're small because everyone keeps getting killed or eaten. What a way to go. Good night. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe. And if you have a story of your own you want to hear on the show, share it with us at darkstories.org. If you want to support the show, check the links in the description. There's a link to donate on Patreon, a link to my merch store, and a link to start investing with acorns, which helps me out a little bit too. Now as usual, here are my five favorite early comments from the previous episode, titled 25 Real Ghost Stories. Leilani Tezga says, Perfect for studying. Thank you. You're very welcome. Studying is a pain, so why not spice it up a bit? WarioWare Do-It-Yourself then says, My favorite game about ghosts is Luigi's Mansion. I'm more of a dead space hallucinating your dead girlfriend kind of guy. Luke Skywalker Endor says, I wish I could be a ghost and haunt my haters. You know, I think the Emperor did that, and he didn't have very good luck. The Comp Shelf says, Right at the Geisterstunde, which means the Ghost Hour. Well, if you don't listen at the Ghost Hour, you're doing it all wrong. And Gina Wulika Pimpin' Your Crap says, Hey, y'all. Have you heard of the Long Legs Monsters? Yeah, I heard they're gonna be on the cover of Vogue, but their legs were too long. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode, but don't you worry, because more scary stories are on the way. Until next time, here are the credits to my amazing patrons who continue to donate. They're awesome people. Remember, stay safe out there, and stay creepy, because this world is a strange one. America is a breeding ground for strange, unexplained creatures and unsolved disappearances. Are the two connected? Probably. America is often quite the nightmare world when it comes to mysterious phenomenon and creepy critters. So, I've got a goodie bag of stories today, featuring terrifying creatures seen in the Midwest United States. Here's to hoping you wore your thickest pair of undies today. If you have a story of your own, be sure to share it with us at darkstories.org. Now, let's begin. Something in the Woods from Ron R. This happened in the fall of 2000 in Indiana. Me and a friend named Jim decided to go camping in the woods behind his grandparents' farm. So that Friday, Jim and I set out to his grandparents to do our yearly campout. Once we arrived, we unloaded the truck and started down the trail out in the back part of the yard. We hiked for about an hour or so before we got to our camping spot. Once there, we did all the normal things like setting up the tent, gathering firewood. Later in the night, Jim and I sat by the fire, talking about the school year discussing Jim's nutjob of a girlfriend that he had, before finally calling it a night. 
We were in the tent for about two hours. I was on the brink of sleep. It usually takes me a while. When suddenly something rammed into the side of our tent wall. Jim woke right up, looking like he had just soiled himself. We both looked at one another, wondering what the heck had just happened. We sat there for a couple of minutes, waiting to see if it would happen again. But it didn't. Eventually, we calmed down, thinking maybe I was falling asleep and accidentally kicked the tent wall or something. We laid back down and passed out. Later on that night, it happened again. Something hit the tent. This time, instead of just sitting there, with dumb looks on our faces, I told Jim to grab his hunting knife, and I grabbed the twenty-two that I brought along. I began to open the tent, then poked my head out, scanning the perimeter to see if there was anything outside. When I was satisfied that it was clear, I climbed out of the tent quietly and began to walk around, circling the camp. Jim followed closely behind. While looking around, I heard what sounded like twigs snapping under someone's footsteps. I began to walk in the direction of those sounds, which seemed to be coming from deeper in the pitch-black forest. We walked in for about thirty minutes before heading back to camp. When we got back, we were dumbfounded. The camp was in shambles. Our tent had been thrown across the campsite. Our supplies had been tossed around and torn to shreds. It looked like someone or something had been looking for something. Being hot-headed teens, we cleaned up the campsite and set the tent back up. We went back to bed for the night, though we were attentive, on the lookout for any other sounds. I woke up just before dawn, two branches falling to the ground in large thuds. I sat there for some time, listening closely. After a bit, I assumed that it was just the wind. Not even five minutes later, something came rushing out of the woods, smacking the rods of the tent so hard, they were flung out of the ground and broken in half. These were metal rods, and when we found them, they looked more like they had been broken in two, like toothpicks. After this happened, the tent fell on top of us. I panicked and grabbed the twenty-two, trying to escape through the door of the tent when something suddenly hit me, knocking me on my rear and right on top of Jim. Not knowing what was going on, Jim grabbed his hunting knife and blindly slashed the side of the tent. In a panic, we both made our way out of the new opening making a mad dash for his grandparents' farmhouse. It seemed like it took forever to finally get there, but when we saw the porch light, we busted through the door and locked it behind us. That morning, Jim's grandpa looked at us and said, What, you guys too scared to stay out there all night? We told him what happened and what we heard. He grabbed his shotgun we all headed back to the camp to check it out. Once we got back, everything was destroyed worse than before. While looking around, I heard Jim call my name with a trembling voice. I ran over and stopped right in my tracks. What he was looking at was the tent, 
which was covered in blood and fur, exactly in the area Jim had slashed the new opening in the tent. Jim had apparently attacked our attacker. Judging by the fur and the footprints we found, even his grandpa had trouble figuring out what in the world had attacked us that night. We gathered everything we could that was intact. We went back to the farmhouse, and we were told to not camp in those woods again. It followed me from Lake Erie, from Joel P. When I was around ten, my grandpa took me to Lake Erie with two of my friends. We went to the beach's edge and started swimming. Then before long, we went to fish with my grandpa. I threw in my line and got a bite really fast. But whatever it was was too big for me and my friends together to pull out. It ended up snapping the pole. I apologized to my grandpa, as it was one of his more expensive poles. He said it was fine. It wasn't my fault, after all. Then he went on to say that he had never seen something break a pole like that. We stayed there fishing until it closed. After a while, my friends went swimming again, leaving my grandpa to fish for a bit. We dared one of my friends to go out to the six-foot-deep zone. He went in, then challenged us to go deeper. I took his challenge, showing him that I wasn't a coward. The moment I passed him, I felt something touch my leg. I thought it was him, the friend that went out into the six-foot-deep water, but he was already swimming back when I turned around, and the thing was still touching my leg. I began to thrash it about, thinking that it was a snake. It went away without a problem. Around that time, my grandpa shouted at us to get out and dry off. It was almost dark, and he was ready to go back. By the time we made it back to the car, it was dark. I got the passenger side seat, while the guys sat in the back. It was a suburban, though, so it was quite roomy. As we began to leave, I looked back the lake, and I saw something in the water. Something was disturbing it, and was slowly emerging from it. I wasn't sure what it was. It wasn't a fish. It looked more like some sort of mammal crawling out of it. But I couldn't get a good look. This is where things get really weird. Five weeks later... One of those friends has constant nightmares, keeps telling his parents that there's something in the water. It gets so bad that his parents end up moving so that they could be further away from the lake, because their son suddenly had an awful fear of it out of nowhere. Before he left, he gave me his number so that we could talk, stay in touch. Not long after he left, he called me for the first time. It even came up in my phone as the number he had saved for me. But when I answered the phone, all I heard was breathing. This happened on several occasions. It was awful, because I never actually got to talk to him again. When I stopped receiving calls from his number, something else began. Nightmares. Nightmares of being back the lake, watching something inhuman slowly crawl out of the water and stare right back at me. 
I would wake up from these dreams out of breath. And the strangest, most terrifying part was that my face would be wet. Wet with cold, dirty water with sediment. If I had to compare it to something, it would be lake water. I've no idea what we saw in the lake. And luckily, the nightmare soon faded. But I don't think I'll ever be able to explain what I saw, or how in the world I got a lake water and sediment on my face and the privacy of my locked room. It doesn't make any sense. Just remember, if you're out fishing at Lake Erie, be careful what you catch, because you might bring it back with you and not even know it. It was playing with us. From Anonymous. A couple of years back, my friend Jack and I went on a road trip, starting out in Boise, Idaho, and ending at my relative's house in Michigan. We would stay there for a couple of weeks before heading home again. We took it slow, stopping at all sorts of oddball roadside attractions and campsites before we finally reached my cousin's place. Once there, we passed the time normally, swimming, playing with my cousin's kids, taking hikes, and holding bonfires. One night, Jack suggested we go on a night hike to get some peace away from the noise and clutter of the house, the opportunity to knock back a couple of beers in silence. It was a perfect summer night after all. The crickets and fireflies were out in full force, and I was in the mood to goof around in the woods so I readily agreed. We set off around eleven o'clock, hefting a bag chock-full of the finest junk food and beer, courtesy of my cousin's pantry and fridge. We hiked along the trail. We talked and joked without any concern for how loud we were being. After all, for all we knew, we were alone in the woods. It was just us, some beer, and some squirrels. Nothing dangerous was living out here near my cousins. Or at least, we thought. As we continued down a trail, Jack came to a sudden halt. He turned around to look at me, eyes wide open. I asked him what was up. He said he saw some movement in the distance, something big. I laughed at him but he smacked my arm and told me that he was completely serious. No joking. I told him that maybe it was a bear, that he should just relax. All we had to do was make some noise and keep a lookout, and it would probably not come any closer. Everything would be fine. Jack looked skeptical, but began to walk on anyway. We kept on going down the trail, but as we rounded a bend up ahead, my blood went cold in my veins. There in the middle of the trail ahead of us stood a massive thing covered in thick black fur. It had to be at least seven feet tall, with a body like a man, and a head more akin to a wolf, maybe a German shepherd. It stared down at us, teeth bared in almost a grin. Jack and I glanced at each other briefly, and in that moment, we had one shared thought. 
run. At the same time, Jack and I turned and bolted back down the trail, as fast as we possibly could. The creature gave chase, though, and it was keeping pace with us easily, always at our side. Obviously, if it wanted to, it could leap out and take us, grab us at any second. We sprinted for what seemed like forever. We were out of breath and in pain. I desperately wanted to drop to my knees, but I knew it would mean my end. Finally, we saw the trail open up into one of the fields, and we broke through. Though the creature had stopped at the edge of the woods, we kept running all the way back to my cousin's place. We burst through the front door and collapsed to the ground. My cousin and his wife panicked, coming to see what this sudden commotion was about but I couldn't get a word in as I had broken down crying. When we calmed down, we tried to tell them what had happened to us, but no one believed us. Jack and I spent the entire night huddled together. We kept the blinds down and the windows and doors locked. We kept an eye on the outside through the blinds. Whatever that thing was, we were still in shock just at the sight of it. That's how unnatural it looked and we didn't want to risk it getting inside if it was still curious as to where we were. Curious is the only way I can describe it, because it didn't seem to want to attack us, though I'm sure it could change its mind at a moment's notice. The following morning, we cut the vacation short, making a quick, almost non-stop trip back home. I didn't want to stick around long enough for the thing to get closer to us, Jack and I didn't talk about it for a few weeks, and after some thinking, I really do think it's some sort of werewolf or dogman. Heck, there's so many sightings of the thing all over the U.S. I'm starting to think they're real, especially after seeing something like it in person. As for what it wanted with us, who knows? Maybe it wanted to hurt us, eat us, or just drive us away from its territory. But Jack and I have another theory. Maybe it's the kind of thing that enjoys savoring the looks of terror on its prey's faces, getting some sort of sick pleasure out of watching us run from it in futility. It was playing with us like a cat would do to a tiny defenseless mouse. There was something with us from Threadbare Logics. It was late October in northern rural Indiana. I was out hunting with a friend, raccoon hunting. I'll call my friend Buddy for this story. It was around 11 p.m. and we had been to a couple of different wooded spots with no luck, so we decided to go to a new area of the forest one that we only recently got permission to hunt at. This was a pretty remote stretch of woods compared to the others, well off the road. There were very few houses around, maybe within half a mile. It's the kind of woods that if you hit a rough spot, you're going to be in big trouble, because it's going to be hard to get back out of there. Everything seemed typical. We pulled back a mile-long lane parked in the field and got out, and let the dog out. 
We sat and joked around for a bit, waiting for the dog to call out, saying that she had one treed. A good half hour goes by, and no report from the dog. We were beginning to assume our bad luck was still going, until we heard barking. She must have treed one, and it was in the worst place. She sounded pretty far off. Buddy and I sucked it up and grabbed our gear, starting to walk in her direction. We were hoping we could take a somewhat straight path through the woods. Once we got in deeper, we realized these woods had been logged. It was logged right in a swamp, and we both groaned, deciding neither of us felt like climbing through a swamp full of downed trees. What a pain. Well, we turned around heading back for the field, following the exterior of the woods. Hopefully we could get back to the dog this way. If not, we'd have to go back to the truck and drive over to where we could get her in. And that's only if we could get the truck in the woods somehow. So we walked for another hour, jumping over a couple of fences and crossing a stream. Eventually, we got around the swamp on the back side of the woods. To our surprise, the dog was only 20 or 30 yards inside the woods from the field we were in. This was good after such a long walk. However, neither of us knew what was about to happen. We didn't know. We were about to be more scared than we'd ever been. The dog was near a big tree with two raccoons up on the top of it. Finally, I thought. The two of us were definitely excited to see that. I took the dog away from the tree and stood about ten yards away, as my buddy was trying to shoot the raccoons. I stood there for a moment, and I began to hear noises. Now, if you're a hunter, or have ever spent any real time in the woods, you know you hear noises. But the noise I was hearing was walking. Footsteps from something that walked on two legs. Another person. All this time I hadn't said a word to Buddy about the noises, and we were standing far enough from each other that we really couldn't see one another all that well. Between shining my light in the tree to help him out, and then shining in the direction I'd been hearing the noises, I'm sure we were both confused. Buddy wasn't paying any attention to me or the noises. He was too focused on the tree and the raccoons. After what felt like forever, we had one coon on the ground, and we were trying to get the other. But as he stopped for a moment to bag the first coon, he began to back away from the tree. I was continuing to shine my light in his direction. All the while, the noises were getting louder and closer, and I think he was beginning to hear them as well. There was this eerie chill in the woods, and in a slow wave, all the noises in the forest began to die down. I wasn't really creeped out until Buddy stopped everything he was doing and looked right at the noise's source. He stopped completely, just standing there and looking. And then he yelled out, Hello! My heart sank. At that moment, I knew this wasn't just noises you hear in the woods. Buddy was seeing something, and it was close. Close enough to make him think that we were not alone. I was petrified from that moment on. Buddy looked over to me. All I could say to him was, You've been hearing it too. He nodded, 
walking over to me steadily so that we were side by side, staring in that direction for several minutes. The walking would start and stop for a long time. Buddy then yelled out hello again, trying to get a reply out of our guest, but they didn't reply. The only response he would get was the footsteps would stop for a moment, but eventually continue. Buddy said he was going to get the other coon as fast as possible so we could get the heck out of here. But as he approached the tree again, whatever was making those noises began to growl. A belly-deep growl. A growl that not only came from ahead of us, but a tree's height above us. How could it be in the trees yet be walking around? How tall was this thing? You wouldn't need to guess to know that we ran like heck out of there. The moment we broke into a sprint with our dog, branches began to snap off the trees like they were fragile number two pencils rather than tree branches. We made it back to our vehicle and left at record speed. We later on told some friends about what happened. We came back with other people several times, but never found or saw what made those noises. I guess it's a riddle now, whatever that thing was. What could be as tall as a tree, but walk like a man and growl like an animal? Harry Prowler from Getty 71 In 1980, I was 9 or 10 years old. This experience was quite harrowing, and my family did not realize anything out of the ordinary at the time, thinking that the person we encountered was just a bad person. But that turned out not to be the case. This happened in Geauga County, Ohio. We lived in an old farmhouse with an even older barn on five acres. My mom, my stepdad, my aunt, two of my cousins, my sister, and I were there. Dad was at work on a second shift and my mom had the car. She took us kids, minus the male cousin about my age, to a movie. I think it was a Friday around 8 p.m. Dad would be off around 11. So we got home after that around dusk. We went inside, via the door that opens to the kitchen toward the back of the house, only to be greeted by my aunt spinning on her heel at us with my old man's Marlin 30-30. The hammer was back on a loaded chamber, and her eyes were wide with terror. My mom shouted at her, Whoa, what happened? My aunt said that some burglar or prowler was outside the house, our neighborhood was sub-rural. We had a prowler incident that ended in four deputies and a huge German shepherd catching the guy in our backyard the previous fall. So obviously, so fresh to that experience, we thought this was a repeat. A couple of seconds later, dry leaves began to crunch underfoot outside the kitchen window as this so-called prowler began to walk away from the house. My mother hurried into the master bedroom off the kitchen to grab the other rifle. My mom and aunt burst out of the side door as undergrowth and twigs were being rustled in a hurry by this prowler. By then, the rest of us had been ordered into hiding in a closet, and we were already there, waiting to see what would happen. When we heard the rifles both opening fire, I ran out of the front of the house and around the driveway, 
to see if my mom and aunt were okay. My mom was hysterical, shouting quite a blue streak as she emptied the twenty-two into the woodline. I could see the silhouette of the individual who was running away. When my mother stopped firing, I could hear the guy's extremely heavy footfalls as he ran through the undergrowth, ivy, deadfall, and vines. But he ran with such ease, as if everything in his way was just air. When the figure disappeared, the police arrived later, and we all gathered round to hear my aunt's story. My aunt had apparently been reading a novel in the living room in a chair right next to one of those old big windows that start close to the floor and go almost to the ceiling. She looked up at one point and was absolutely horrified to see a face in the window. This sent her flying to get the 30-30. You see, that side of the house was, you could probably guess, against the woodline, and in order for a man's face to appear in that window that way, he would either have to be standing on something, which we never found, or he was over eight feet tall. And from his footprints, this man was obviously barefoot, and had some feet that were absolutely huge. As for the shootout, my mother and aunt didn't hit the thing directly, but what the police did recover instead of blood was chunks of fur, dark brown, which obviously would not appear on a person. Fast forward to early fall that same year. I'm on the front door stoop on a gorgeous warm day, reading a book on Sasquatch for a book report I was doing. I think it may have been one of Bob Gimlin's books. My aunt comes out the front door to summon me for dinner, and she stopped cold in her tracks. She sat down next to me, almost in shock. The book was open to a page with a very good artist's rendering of a Sasquatch bust. She pointed to it and told me that that face was almost perfectly similar to the one she saw in the window. It was only after she said this that I closed the book and she got a look at the title. I remember her saying under her breath, No way. She made me swear not to tell anyone, and to this day only a few select family members know, and we all believe her. The Prowler was no man. It was something much bigger and covered in fur. Three stories from working around a military base from RJB. I work in and on the surrounding woods of an army base, and I've got some experiences you might be interested in. The forest is mostly made up of pine trees, and there's also replicated villages where the soldiers train scattered throughout. Some of them are over 35 miles out, and most of the roads are gravel or dirt. These are three of the scariest things that have happened to me. The Ghost in Youngstown I was working in one of the villages about 25 miles from the base. My co-worker Donald was telling me about an employee from the company I work for, who had apparently ended himself in one of the buildings by hanging himself from a ceiling fan. The building was made to look like a clinic complete with hospital beds and a reception desk. 
As soon as I walked into that building the first time, I felt something. It didn't feel malicious or evil, but something about it was wrong. I wasn't scared at first, but I was very uncomfortable. My anxiety quickly rose, and I began to feel depressed even. I wanted to leave, but I had work to do. But I had to go ahead and finish the work order. I had to replace three of the doors there. The first two work orders were in the back of the clinic, but the third was the door to the entrance of the hanging room, as my coworkers called it. The second my foot crossed the threshold of that room, my uneasiness worsened. Come on, man. It'll only take seven minutes at the most, I reminded myself. Did you say something? Donald asked as he entered the clinic to check on my progress. It was nothing. I replied. I'm sure he noticed my troubled behavior, but he didn't mention it. All right, come help me when you're finished. He quipped before walking out of the door. He seemed unaffected by the aura in the room. I lit a cigarette, and I started to install the doorknob. It was a tight fit, and I ended up having to hammer it in with a rubber mallet. As I reached for the other knob, I heard the distinct sound of rattling metal hitting the floor. What the heck? I said aloud. There was no way the knob fell by itself. I felt my anxiety reaching its peak. I could feel eyes on me. I was alone, yet someone was there with me. Hello? Anyone there? I whimpered out. Then I stood up, facing towards the ceiling fan. My nose started burning from the smoke coming from my cigarette, still perched between my lips. I took a long drag. The sound of approaching footsteps in front of me caught my attention. I looked up at the fan and breathed out. When I did, the smoke seemed to spread out drastically about six inches in front of my face, as if there was someone's face in front of me that I could not see. I could almost see the smoke revealing facial features. I think he's still there, the man who took his own life. He's trapped. His pain and sorrow still linger in the clinic. Sometimes they follow. A very large number of people say that they've seen strange things or creatures or have been followed through the woods by something they cannot see around here. I'll say I've only caught glimpses of this creature or creatures or have found evidence of them lurking in the woods. At first, I thought it was just one, but as time has passed, I'm beginning to believe there are perhaps more than one of them. The first piece of evidence came in the form of a footprint. I found it in a village called Jetertown. There was only one. It was in a patch of mud. The first thing I noticed was it was big around, around 16 inches. Then I noticed that there were six digits, and there was even webbing between the toes. I asked my coworker about this, and he said he saw them on occasion, and that I should expect the same. The second piece of evidence came in the form of two carcasses, or at least what was left of them. 
We were on a gravel road, and we were coming to a low water crossing, when we noticed something at the edge of the water. We pulled up to the crossing and got a morbid surprise. All over the road were shredded pieces of what was once a deer and a wild hog. The deer's innards were on the ground. The head was gone. The hog's head was gone too, as well as its limbs. It was a mess. It didn't look like the work of a starving animal, but more like the work of an animal who wanted to slaughter something. The final proof I received was the first sighting I had. Whatever it was, it wasn't natural. My coworker Justin and I were in a village called Carnus, replacing a set of steps to the imitation police station. I had just cut a board for one of the steps when we both heard what sounded like a voice calling for help. Hey, did you hear that? Justin asked. Yeah, I replied. We stopped what we were doing and listened. Help me. A voice came from behind the tree line. Something wasn't right about this voice, though. It sounded like help me was being repeated on loop. It was filled with static as if it was being spoken through a speaker from a radio. Let's go find out where that's coming from, Justin said. That's a bad idea, Justin. Something doesn't seem right about this. I retorted. Help me. The voice came again, the same tone and same pitch, except it was far closer. We both froze. It came from behind a large red oak tree less than ten yards away. It wasn't much longer before we actually saw it. The thing peeking around the tree, staring at us. It looked like a hairless lemur, but it was bigger, about four feet tall, and it had these long things protruding from the bottom jaw. Its skin looked like it was charred. It was black and seemed to be falling off in places. Justin, Justin, do you see this? Yeah, I see it, he said. The creature opened its mouth and released a sound like a child laughing. It stepped out from behind the tree and dropped to all fours, its disgusting rotting tail whipping back and forth. Get in the truck. Now. Come on, Justin. It ran at us at an unnatural speed. We ran for the truck and got in, locking it right as the creature began to claw at the side of the truck. We started it and drove away, as the thing continued to follow the truck, but we eventually lost it. We hauled Tell out of there. I've seen those things since, but only at a distance. I don't know what it is, but it's aggressive and very obviously dangerous. Stairway to Oblivion This is perhaps the most unnerving thing I've seen since I started the job. If you've read I am a search and rescue officer from the subreddit No Sleep on Reddit, then you've probably heard of the stairs. I can confirm that crap like that happens out in these woods, but it makes more sense out here 
as fake buildings come and go for the army's purposes, but they're still quite creepy. The first sets of them come at least 15 or so miles into the woods. Some are dilapidated and in ruins, but some look brand new and are complete with carpet. Those are the ones that don't make any sense, because there's never any dirt or debris on them. And as you walk closer to these brand new looking ones, the forest around you will go quiet. It's less like they just happen to be in a remote part of the forest, but more like the wildlife avoids them entirely. The first time I saw them, I didn't know what to think. I was actually on my way home from work. When I go home from my job, I take a route through the woods. I travel down gravel roads and dirt trails to get home. I was driving down a trail when a deer ran out in front of me. I managed to swerve around it, but I ended up bottoming out in the ditch. I cursed to myself. I looked up to see that deer standing at the edge of the trail staring at me. I thought it was strange, but where I work, deer hunting is prohibited, so the deer don't really care about people. I got out of my truck to check for any damages. Luckily, the damage was minimum. I called a friend to pull my truck out, and I noticed a structure about 100 yards into the thicket. I only noticed the top of it at first, but as I drew closer, I began to realize what it was. The heck is this doing out here? I wondered. I've never noticed it before, and as far as I knew, there had never been any fake villages or towns here. I stood about 50 yards away from the staircase. It consisted of 12 steps with beige siding and red carpet running up the steps. It was pristine, as if it was just built that day. As I stood there, awestruck, I began to feel anxiety all over me. However, I moved closer. Somehow I was compelled to move towards it, like it was telling me to come closer. I stopped ten feet away from it and noticed something weird. It was quiet, dead silent. My anxiety began to skyrocket. I felt like I shouldn't be there. I stepped a little closer and reached my hand out to touch it. I didn't want to, but I felt like I had to, or something bad would happen. I tried to move, but my legs and feet would not respond. Then I heard a voice yelling my name from the trail behind me. It was the friend that I had called. My name being called was just enough to snap me out of that trance. I trudged back through the thicket and exited the tree line. My friend had a look of relief on his face. The heck were you, dude? He asked. I've been calling you for twenty minutes straight now. What do you mean? I replied. I couldn't have been gone for more than seven minutes tops. Besides, there's this weird staircase out there in the middle of the woods. You should see it. He followed me back to where the stairs were. But it was clear. There was nothing where the stairs once were. It was as if it was never there, just a small clearing with colorful flowers scattered throughout the area, but no stairs. Come on, man, my friend said as he patted me on the back. Let's get your truck moving and get out of here. 
I was confused. Did I imagine that whole thing? It seemed so real. I would get my answer a few weeks later, when a coworker and I found a set on a different trail. Another set of stairs. I asked him about it then, and he said that he didn't really know much about them, except that other people have seen them. They've been seeing them for as long as they could remember, before the army base was even here. It's this sort of unexplained strangeness that's the scariest to me. Because what does it mean? Big Sky from Pixie Sticks It was the 90s. I was in my early 30s, residing in a large city in Ontario, Canada. Being a small-town girl at heart, there were times I missed space, fresh air, and quiet. I was dating a fella from northwestern Ontario at the time. He lived on a First Nations reserve near the Manitoba border. Although it was a long-distance relationship, we made the effort to visit one another as much as possible. As I was casually employed at the time, my schedule was more flexible than his. So, quite often I would take the overnight bus ride to his place, which took me up and over beautiful country around two great lakes. Quite an adventure in itself, and a usually very pretty trip. Part of my visits usually entailed trips over the border to Winnipeg to visit my beaux, aunts, and cousins. It was during one of these jaunts that I had an adventure of another kind. I should point out that I was around and in the Ojibwa Nation. It's a wonderful way of life and people. Part of my experience entailed listening to loads of interesting stories, as it's largely an oral tradition and a living history. A lot of the stories involved topics and situations of a paranormal nature, something that I had a very open mind to, and I find it intriguing. Although I must admit that perhaps I thought most of the stories were allegorical, some sort of moral lesson or cautionary tale that was never supposed to be taken literally. It was on a bright and sunny weekday when my boyfriend and I, along with his sister, we're driving back from Winnipeg. The sky looked like the typical big sky look that the prairies are known for. Huge blue sky, and very little, if any, clouds. There was hardly any traffic on the road. I remember the band Gas Who was playing on the radio, and there was a lull in our conversation. I was looking up at the tops of trees, searching for eagles, and was feeling very relaxed. I noticed one huge pine tree off by itself, and beside it, about ten or fifteen feet from the ground, was this white egg-shaped thing just hovering by the tree. If I were to estimate a size of this thing, it would be maybe twenty to twenty-five feet across. It just floated there, a perfect elliptical shape. It was off-white in color, sort of glinting like a pearl or opal. All of us were silently looking at it, not really saying a word. If that wasn't strange enough, it got stranger. It was like we became frozen. The car seemed to freeze in place. Time stopped around us, 
and there was no sound except for this weird industrial hum, like a cross between a cicada buzzing and the grind of a circular saw, as heard from a distance. Then, poof, the thing disappeared from view in the blink of an eye. Then there was a jolt of the car. The radio came back on, and all at once we collectively shouted, What was that? I also got a splitting headache soon after. There was talk about lights in the sky and general weirdness. I distinctly remember my boyfriend stating, We're told those things really like being near water. Very fitting, considering we were in Lake of the Woods territory. It's interesting to note that very near where we had our experience, one well-known Canadian UFO case occurred. The Falcon Lake Incident from the 1960s. I overheard my grandmother's story. From Anonymous. Some time ago, I overheard my grandmother talking to my aunts. She was telling them about her experience when she went to visit her sister in the next town over. At the time, I had my headphones in, but I played the music really low so I could still hear my surroundings. My grandma is a religious person. She's wise, kind, and would be considered a witch doctor or locally known as a Bobohisan in the olden days. She doesn't sprout bullcrap, and this is why I believe her story. So here's what I overheard. I have a great aunt living in a town about three hours away from my own hometown. A few years back, my grandmother went to visit my great aunt and stayed for a couple of days. My great aunt owns a two-story house where the ground floor is just a large parking area and living areas are on the first floor. When she first arrived during the day, everything was normal. She spent some quality time with her sister and had a good time overall. But when it was starting to get dark, they began closing all the windows and curtains, and the doors super tight. After that, they went about their business as usual. So my grandmother was in the kitchen with my great-aunt and my aunties. They were preparing for dinner when they heard clucking outside. It sounded a lot like a chicken, but more human. It was hovering at least 16 feet in the air, and from how my grandmother tells it, they weren't surprised to hear this. She called it the most unpleasant feeling she has ever experienced. The clucking was circling the house, going from window to window, door to window, trying to find a way inside the house. My grandmother mentioned that it was trying to smell the newcomer, which was my grandma at the time so that's why it was circling the place. She said if you looked really closely between the gaps of the curtains, you'll see a head floating with its entrails blowing in the air. She stopped talking when she noticed I was listening. I didn't know what happened next, but I remembered a similar story I overheard her whispering to my aunts when I was little. This happened when she was newly married, pregnant with her first child. 
They were having dinner when the roof just collapsed and a headless man fell from the ceiling, bleeding from the neck. As with the previous story, I don't know what happens after, because my grandmother seems reluctant to let us kids know about it. But what I can tell you is the name of this creature. It is called the Penangal, but better known as Balan Balan here in my hometown. I have heard people talking about this particular creature long before I was exposed to the internet, but a lot of the people I know seem reluctant to even say its name out loud. They say it makes them stronger. I did some research on the internet recently and found that a lot of what was whispered there in my hometown matches with what I found online, though some information seems to be missing. What did we encounter? From Corvette. There's a trail in my town that I've been walking on with my family for as long as I can remember, but I guess not a lot of people have heard about it. Often when I bring it up with friends, they don't know what I'm talking about. It's not a very big trail, just a small loop that I can't imagine is even a mile long. You can actually see it from the freeway, so I'm honestly surprised that more of my friends don't know about it, but I digress. In recent years, my sister and I have been taking walks on this trail on our own, and I can happily report that most of the time there's nothing odd about the experience. However, there have been a few weird incidents. The first one I can remember was the time we both suddenly got a strange sense that something was wrong on the trail. I don't mean like we thought we were in any danger. It just suddenly felt wrong. More like we both thought it looked and felt like we weren't in the right spot at all. It had been a while since we had walked the trail when this happened, so normally I'd actually just chalk this up as a case of us not knowing the trail as well as we thought, except that this has happened again more than once since. It feels like every other time we go for a walk here, we get about halfway through the loop when we suddenly get this sense of being lost. But the incident that still really baffles me to this day, the two of us swear we saw something alive on the trail. The first sighting happened when we sat down on the bench to eat the snack lunches we had packed. Everything was perfectly normal until my sister suddenly jumped up like a bug had been crawling on her. I really did assume that that's what happened, until she actually told me what made her jump, which didn't happen until after my own sighting. Mine was closer to the end of the loop, and we were deciding whether or not to go around again, because it really is just a short trail. Near the trailhead, there is a bridge over a small creek, and as we were talking... I looked over to the bridge, and for a split second, I thought I saw something standing on it. I swear it was the same size as a human, but the head was shaped like a German Shepherd's. However, when I blinked, it was gone. I was willing to believe that my eyes were playing tricks on me, and I laughed it off, telling my sister what my dumb brain had thought I'd seen. And that's when she confided in me 
about what had made her jump earlier. While we were eating, she says that she had indeed thought she saw something crawling on her. But it wasn't a bug like I assumed. According to her, what had been crawling on her was a small brown rodent. But it disappeared when she jumped, and of course I had not seen it myself. Yet neither of us had seen anything crawl away. So she assumed it was just her imagination. Now here's the really weird part. About a week after this, we decided to go back and walk the trail again. But this time, we brought a friend with us. It was one of those friends who had not been on the trail before, or even knew that it existed. As we were walking, we did recount our strange sightings to them, still laughing about our silly imaginations. None of us thought more of it than that, and it was a pretty normal walk around the loop until we got close to the end of the trail. My friend suddenly said to us, Oh, look, really excitedly, I had assumed she was looking at someone with a dog, but then she paused and looked really confused, so I had to ask her about it. She swears off to the side of the trail she had seen a raccoon or something, but it had stood up onto its back legs to stare at us for a moment as we walked by. But just like with our sightings, it was gone the moment she blinked. My mom's side of the family is Irish. Ridiculously Irish. Growing up, I always had a slight accent, which thickened after spending time with my grandparents. My grandfather is probably the most important person in my life. I love him very much, and was practically his shadow when I was younger. Wherever he was, I was two steps behind. Our favorite thing to do together was sitting in front of the fire, with our cups of tea and biscuits, and he would tell me stories. Some about his childhood, some works of fiction, some life lessons, and some would be so spooky that I had to sleep on the floor next to his and Nana's bed. But my favorite stories were the stories based on folklore. But which one was my favorite? The Banshee. For those of you who don't know what the legend of the Banshee is, my grandfather explained to me that the Banshee was the full-bodied apparition of a woman, so beautiful, it was almost unnatural. Skin pale, with long, bright hair. She had been cursed with the ability to foresee the death of people, and her responsibility with the curse was to be the messenger of death. He would say that if I was to ever hear her crying, or to ever hear her scream, I would know that the life of a loved one would soon be over. Something that he would always make a point to say was that the Banshee was not an evil or malicious spirit. She was simply sick of seeing death, and hated being the one to tell people that death was at hand. I always enjoyed hearing stories about her. I never thought she was real. I was always under the impression that the Banshee was just another work of fiction by my grandpa. But she is real, and I can tell you that. My first encounter with her was when I was twelve. Now, I've always been supernaturally sensitive. At least, that's what I believe. I used to see my great-grandparents almost every night. 
My great Nana would tuck me in bed, and my great Pop would hum or whistle till I fell asleep. One day I was at my grandparents' farm, walking around early in the morning with my dog, Bowie. It was winter, so you can imagine it was freezing, probably around four or five degrees Celsius. So I was bundled up like a little burrito, strolling around the property. Bowie and I were checking on the cows, sheep, and bulls. I'd made a decent amount of distance between the house and myself, so I decided to sit on a rock next to a small stream, just in front of the bushland. Not long after doing so, I began to hear a strange noise. I didn't know if it was the wind or a fox, possibly even a guinea fowl. But Bowie had heard it too. A very low growl came from his mouth. I felt a cloud of dread settle into my stomach. I didn't think I was alone anymore, and I knew that something was wrong. I took off my ear covers and pushed my beanie above and behind my ears. The noise was coming from the trees behind me. The only way I can describe what I heard that day is sadness. It sounded like despair. I stood and moved closer to the trees, Bowie showing his protest by growling much louder. The figure of a person emerged from the early morning fog. They were walking. No, they were floating ever so slowly. The noise was clearer. They were crying, crying like they had just received the most terrible, awful news imaginable. I walked closer. My curiosity got the better of me. The floating figure came closer as well. It was a woman, the most stunningly beautiful woman I'd ever seen, in a long silver evening gown that's seen its fair share of bad days. Her hair was windswept and orange, like a burning fire. Her eyes, however, looked as though they belonged to another person. They were tired, puffy, red, as if they'd been shedding tears every day for the past few decades. Those eyes met mine. They stopped crying for a few seconds. I stared in a trance and the world around me seemed to have stopped. After the longest minute I'd ever lived through, her mouth opened in a sickeningly inhuman way and an eardrum-piercing, blood-curdling scream emanated from it. Bowie began to bark and snarl at the woman, then ran off back to the house. But I didn't move. I didn't cover my ears. I stared at her. I wasn't thinking. I don't even know what I was doing. She finally stopped the dreadful scream, not breaking eye contact. She mumbled something under her breath. This is when I got my senses back, and I backed away quickly, turning around and booking it back to the house. When I made it to the gate, I turned around, and she was gone. But I still felt her presence. I shook off my uneasy feeling and ran to find my grandfather. He was carrying wood from the shed to the house. I fell to my knees and I cried to him. I couldn't get out anything but a single sentence. 
I, I, I saw a banshee. A week later, my cousin died in her sleep. Her heart just stopped. Something in the Cornfields From Sam W27 I was 14 years old and a freshman in high school. My friend had, at the time, recently moved away to a crazy country house that had about 23 acres. It was insanely huge. He used to live in the city with me, but his family wanted a more private life, so my mom had agreed to drive two hours to go see them and spend the night. My mom was friends with his mom, so I had never seen his new place and was super excited to see it because I was going with her. We pull up to their address, and the first thing I noticed were the huge cornfields. My friend told me his parents were growing corn for a living, but these were huge, and there were surprisingly a lot of workers, considering the nearest house was about half a mile away. Fast forward to about 1 a.m. My friend and I, who for the purpose of this story I'll call Timothy, were doing the basic 14-year-old stuff playing video games, eating junk food, etc. But then we hear a bang at my friend's window. I said let's check it out, but he didn't think it was anything worth looking at and wanted us to stay in here. But our parents were asleep, so I said, well, I'm checking it out. You can come with me if you want. I was bluffing because there was absolutely no way I was going to go into the cornfields alone at night. I'd played a lot of Outlast 2 at the time and watched a lot of horror films. Luckily, it worked, and Timothy agreed to go with me. We soon discovered that there are three of the workers still in the fields, which is weird because they all leave at five, and Timothy's dad drives them to a farm where they live. We asked them why they were still here, and they said something I could barely understand. They spoke Spanish, and I was not fluent. They said something along the lines of, We saw something on our farm, some sort of animal. We came here, waiting to get a call from our brothers to see if they caught it. We'll give you fifty bucks to come help us. At the time, I told Timothy, once we figured out what they'd said, no way, because I was skeptical, and I thought they may try to kidnap us. But Timothy assured me that they had known our family for a while, and they probably came to our house since we were the closest neighbors. Being 14 years old, we both obviously accepted the deal, because even if we didn't find it, they promised to give us each 25 bucks. So we hopped into their truck, and we soon made it to their farm. They told us to keep an eye out in the fields, so me and Timothy began to scan around for the next ten minutes, searching for anything that stood out, anything that moved. All we really had were the flashlights on our cell phones, but apparently that was plenty enough to find the creature that they'd been talking about. There, crouching down in one of the many fields, was something that I thought was a bear, but I quickly realized it wasn't. 
This thing was standing on two legs, and was sort of dragging the rest of its body along with itself, with a face that was almost humanoid. Timothy and I began to shout and scream when the family of farmers began running towards us. They quickly saw and began to fire at the animal, but it was long gone, far faster than it looked with its weird body. They quickly told us not to tell our parents, and sent us off with a hundred bucks each, instead of twenty-five. We were happy, but terrified. At the end of the night, we decided that it was best to keep this story to ourselves. I'm staying out of my woods. From Random Person this story takes place in Ohio, on a farm where I still live. The incident happened in 2019 when I was 14 years old. I was an atheist, but I still believed in ghosts and things like that, even though I'd never really encountered any paranormal things until now. I'd never thought my house or property was haunted, because my mom and sister would say crazy things like we had a spirit of a goat in our living room. I thought that was nonsense. I'd been living in that house with my family for years, with no incident. My most terrifying experience happened in July, when my sister came into the living room, shaking while she spoke of a demonic entity being in the woods. I would have thought she was crazy, but she seemed so traumatized, I had to believe her though I didn't want to. The following morning, at 2.49, I was feeling brave, and I wanted to see if I would encounter anything weird. So I went deep into the forest with a flashlight and some fresh batteries. I also brought a pocket knife and my fully charged phone, just in case what my sister actually saw was some creepy person. As soon as I had entered the forest, I felt a little uneasy, but I kept going for about twenty minutes. I was a natural speedwalker, able to get far enough into the woods in that time that I could no longer see a trace of my home. I freaked out a little, to be honest, and I began to walk in the direction I thought my house was. I was walking slowly now, though, as my uneasiness grew. When I stopped again, I felt as if I was being watched. When I turned, I didn't see anything, but my flashlight did begin to flicker. It then suddenly turned off. I frantically tried to turn it back off when I heard voices whispering, seemingly coming from nowhere but everywhere at once. I soon began to realize that this voice didn't sound right, it didn't sound human at all, and what it was saying sent chills throughout my body. You're going to die. When my flashlight finally turned back on, I saw something. A six-foot-tall figure, wearing tattered black clothes. Its eyes were sunken in, and it had pale skin. It dawned a smile with black teeth, and it appeared to float rather than stand. I was frozen in place, and as it got closer, 
The whole forest seemed to get darker and colder. Desperate, I then remembered my pocket knife. I pulled it out and threw it at him, but it went right through him as if he wasn't there. I think this made it more angry. The whispering grew louder and louder, and it began to move around me. I finally gathered the courage to move, and I started running. Somehow I managed to make it back to the tree line at home, but I didn't stop, not in the slightest. I ran harder until I made it to the back porch, and only then did I look back. That thing was standing at the edge of the trees, staring at me, raising a bony pale finger, pointing it at me. I could have sworn I heard it speak a warning. After dark, these woods are not yours. Ever since then, whenever I looked out into those woods at night, I watch for a figure that stands there and stares. One time, when I looked for too long, I got a nosebleed. And so far, I've never ventured back in those woods at all. It wasn't a coyote. From Just Call Me Red. As I'm typing this, I'm still a little shaky from what happened. And now, I need to know what my cousin and I just saw in the pasture. Let it be known I've always had an attraction to cryptid lore, especially my family's Cherokee folklore and legends. Sadly, we don't have any living relatives on the reservation, nor do we live close. We live in a small town in rural East Texas. I say in town, but more like 30 miles out. Let me ask you this. Has anyone else seen coyotes behaving really, really strange? Like not normal coyote strange, but hair-raising, bad feeling before you see it kind of strange. Let me elaborate. I just walked outside, didn't turn on the house spotlights, but I had a really weird feeling. I then noticed it was completely silent outside. No crickets, no frogs, no night sounds at all, and Ellie, my dog, would not come out of the house. So I grabbed my spotlight, and I decided to do a sweep of our back pasture to see if I could see what was wrong. The layout of our yard is quite simple. Our pipe fence is about 30 to 35 feet from our house, all the way around from when we had cows to keep them out of the yard. We keep it pretty well lit up to keep animals away. Our property is about 150 acres of woods and cow pasture that butts up against our neighbor's 1500 hunting club which is pretty much dense woods, connecting on both sides to two other hunting clubs. It's pretty much a crap ton of dark woods. I shined the flashlight, and the first thing I saw was this massive coyote, like abnormally big, sitting about 15 feet from the porch. It's just sitting there and staring. Now I've dealt with coyotes a lot, and they usually bolt when they get spotted. They never come within 50 feet of the fence, 
I stood there staring at this thing for a good five minutes, before slowly backing up, with this creature still not moving. So I turned on the floodlights on the house, and I booked it inside to get Ethan, my cousin. When the two of us came back out, this animal had walked out of the fence, and was just walking at a slow pace, about ten feet past the fence. So we set up a gun, spotted it with the light, and as soon as the light hit it, the creature just stopped and stared at us. Its eyes were really unnerving, because they reflected differently than a coyote's should. We took four shots. The first one hit right in the back, and he stumbled a bit, moving in a circle like it was just shaking off a pesky bug, before taking off at a slow trot. It was moving closer to the fence, letting us hit it three more times before my mare came squealing at it. She hates coyotes and has stomped them in the past whenever we had calves on the ground. But when she got close, she did an about turn, then booked it away faster than I'd ever seen her. We lost sight of the coyote in the tall grass. Literally, as soon as we lost sight of it, Everything came to life again. Bugs, crickets, and all the night sounds. I grabbed my dog and she booked it outside. I guess she was suddenly brave. She ran straight to where we'd first seen the thing sitting, and she went rigid, every hair on her back standing up. She snarled as she traced it through the pasture, but came back when she got about right past the fence where we hid it. Coyotes have been acting strange lately, but nothing like that. Usually I don't get unnerved by coyotes, but this literally had me frozen with that feeling that something was dangerously wrong. Keep your eyes peeled, and keep your animals inside. We sure as heck are keeping the cat indoors, and I'm glad they've had their shots. And I'll be forward with you. I'm a pretty stout gal. Twenty years old and five foot two, a little heavy, who spent her entire life in the backwoods. I'm used to dealing with dangerous animals, and I've never in my life been as scared as I was then. My cousin is nineteen, six feet tall and two hundred pounds. He spent most of his life in the hood in Houston, and has come so close to death so many times he's not afraid of much, especially when he's got a gun in his hands. Update. About two days after this happened, it came back. My cousin and I were out checking the hog traps at the back of the property in my dad's farm truck. I was sweeping the pasture with our mounted light while Ethan reset the trap. Our back pasture from fence to fence is probably 800 yards to 600 yards, and it's pretty clear after we did some timber cutting a few years back. The moon was full that night, and so we could see pretty good. It was all calm as Ethan came back to the truck, my dog sniffing around the trap. As Ethan reached the truck, we both noticed the woods go silent, just like two nights before. There was nothing. Even my dog had stopped and began barking and snarling before booking it, yelping to the truck, he jumped into the cab with us through the open window. We quickly both swung the mounted lights toward the direction she came from and spotted 
the same monster coyote standing there. We were maybe seven to eight feet away from it, so we were most certainly sure it was the same coyote, abnormally large, glaring right at us. As we stared at it, I was slowly reaching for the shotgun we kept stored behind the seat, before that thing. I don't want to call it a coyote, because I don't think that's what it was. It lifted its head and let out that sound like a mixture of a human screaming and a deep roar. There's no way a coyote can make a sound like that. My cousin slammed the truck into reverse, doing a near 180 in the grassy pasture. We peeled out of there, down the trail, leading to the house. All the while, this thing just kept screaming, unafraid of our large vehicle. We didn't slow down until we were in our garage. Then we booked it into the house, into the bedroom, the only place I had window blinds as well as blackout curtains. I don't know what that thing was, but now my cousin wants to get some local hunters together with their hunting dogs to go after it. I won't be going into those woods for a while, and I'll never go alone again if I ever do. The Flying Head From a viewer with the username The Asian Guy I'm from Southeast Asia, specifically Cambodia. This story is from my grandma. Back when she was a little kid, the country was under control by Pol Pot, the guy that killed over two million people. Her family was separated during the time, since the red people, as we call them, like to separate children and adults, and as my gram was a kid, she was tasked with picking fruits and vegetables in a farm somewhere on the outskirts of the village. Near that farm was a small river where the red people dumped dead workers, who either starved or were beaten to death as a warning to the children. One day she was sent off really early with a bunch of other kids to collect fruits she said it was probably somewhere between four or five in the morning, which was unusual for them, but they carried on anyway. The group was around thirty kids, with a few guards armed with guns and hatchets. After maybe a few minutes of walking from the village, they made it on the path. I should say here that the village was surrounded by forest and farmland, so the walk to the fruits farm took around five to ten minutes. The red people did this so villagers wouldn't be able to sneak out at night and steal fruits or vegetables without being caught. After they made it onto the path, my grandma said she felt dread and fear out of nowhere. She said that the kids around her looked scared as well, but they were told to keep moving anyway by the guards. After a few minutes of walking, they began to hear a strange sound, like something was chewing gnawing on meat. It was coming from over the river. As they got closer, they started to become really scared, and some kid even began to cry. It was at this point the guards knew something was wrong, so they started to walk closer to the river to see what was going on. To her horror, my grandma saw one of the guards beginning to scream, shooting at something. 
Then she saw the thing that made her vow to not go anywhere near that river ever again. There she was, standing on the path, looking at this human head, with intestines dangling out of its neck. It looked like a woman's head with gray hair, but the worst detail was the stuff in its mouth. She said the darn thing was eating one of the corpse's intestines. The head managed to get away, but ever since then, the guard began taking a different path through the forest. Anyone who wanted to take that path needed permission from the village chief. A few weeks after that incident, she said some poor kid who was caught sneaking fruits under his shirt was beaten in front of everyone to show what would happen to thieves. He was then sent off to be executed. They were told by the village chief to dispose of him in the river. The guards were scared at first because of the flying head incident, but after being accused of not being loyal to the village chief, they went anyway. After that, everyone was sent off to their huts. Not even a few minutes rolled by, and my gram said she heard a gunshot. After a few minutes, she heard footsteps, running, and panicked screaming and panting. They found out early in the morning, after that night, while the guard was walking the kid down to the river, the guards had heard a whooshing noise and saw the head thing flying straight at them, eyes glowing red. They began to fire at it, running away back to the village, where they realized they forgot the kid. No one ever saw him again, though. They believed that the head got him. After that, the red people just put up a fence there, trying to forget it never happened. A few years after the terror of Pol Pot, Cambodia was freed, and my grandma got to reunite with her family, though she never told anyone until recently, when me and my cousins asked her about her time during the Red Era. I hope you enjoyed the story, and if you're curious, the creature she saw is called the Ang. She found out after reuniting with her family that they were pretty common among the rural area of Cambodia. They were said to feast on intestines. The head are those of a witch, usually in their forties, who are seeking revenge on someone. A Goblin Under the House From Dragonlord It was 1989. I was at my grandmother's house. It was almost June, and I'd gone to my great-grandma's farm for the summer. This farm had been in the family for over 100 years, and was about 150 acres. Every year when I would go to stay with my grandparents, my grandpa would always tell me that a goblin lived under the house, and that it would come out and steal animals or eggs. As far back as I can remember, my grandmother would lay out a rooster chicken and two hard-boiled eggs on a tray by an oddly shaped hole leading under the house, and sure enough, it would all be gone in the morning. Even when I was younger, I always thought my grandparents were telling me tall tales. They were setting the food out to keep the fox in the woods away from the chickens. That's what my child mind said. One night, I'd left some stuff out in the barn so I finished everything Grandma had set out for me to do. 
Then I went off to the barn to clean up. As I stepped out the door to the house and started toward the barn, I came by the odd hole under the house. I had an old flashlight from the 70s, and curious, I shined it into the hole where Grandma had laid the food. I saw it. There was something in there hunched over the tray. It was short and brownish-green, with long, droopy ears. It was eating the food Grandma had left out, not paying attention to me whatsoever. I turned off the flashlight and hid behind the outhouse that was still on the property. After a bit, the creature stood up and started to look around, making groans and all sorts of weird sounds. Not paying attention, I started backing up, and I backed right into it. The electric fence, that is. I let out a scream, causing that thing to turn around and look right at me. So I ran. I ran as fast as I could back to the front door with this ugly little beast right on my feet. Luckily, I was able to get in the house without a scratch. And after that, I never went outside after dark at my grandma's house. Skinwalker on my farm From Copenhagen, 1822 I live in southern Indiana with my Uncle Steve. We have a 300-acre farm with plenty of woods. It was during the summer. I was working late hours in the fields. I went out early in the morning to round up our herd of cattle to come in for a drink of cold, fresh water. And when I was walking behind them, I would count to see if they were all there. I was bringing in a herd of thirty cows, but this time I counted twenty-nine. I went ahead and brought them in, then went to tell my uncle that we were missing number 225. We went to look for her, because we knew we had to find her. She was due for a calf that month, so we searched and searched. But then, I smelled something horrible. I about puked. When I found what the smell was, I hollered for my uncle. He came right over and saw it too. Cow 225 was torn apart. It looked like some huge, nasty animal got a hold of it. But my uncle said it was probably just coyotes. But how? 225 had always been an aggressive cow, and it never would let anyone or anything get near her herd. Plus, it looked as if whatever killed her did it for sport and not food. Everything had been left. So we went and got our old crappy farm truck, loaded her up, and buried her. The following night, I had my best friend over, who wanted to help us on the farm. We were in the field at dusk fixing fences for breaks or sags. It was going to take us from dawn to eleven that night to do the whole property. So my buddy went to go get some drinks back at the house, about three miles away. He walked the whole distance instead of taking the truck, as we were using the headlights to help fix the fence. It's not an easy task. About ten minutes go by, and I hear my uncle in the direction of the woods about twenty yards away. It was his voice, saying the same thing he had said earlier, about, Must have been coyotes that got her. I froze in my tracks. The voice was a bit deeper than my uncle's, actually. 
I shined the flashlight toward the direction of the voice, and what reflected back were a set of yellow eyes about seven or eight feet off the ground. Then my friend came from behind me with the flashlight, shining it at whatever it was, and asked what was wrong. As he did that, I nearly soiled myself, and I heard him drop the water bottles. There behind the big oak tree was this huge thing. It was so tall, with long and skinny arms and human-looking hands. Its fingernails were long and sharp, and the skin on its torso was so tight, its ribs were showing. It had a face that I just can't forget. It was shaped like a deer's. I was thinking in my head we needed to run to the truck, but I didn't say it out loud. I thought it, but I heard that voice again, replying to that thought. I wouldn't do that if I were you. I nearly screamed, and I ran to get back in the truck. My friend and I jumped in, started it, and I sharply turned the wheels, slinging dirt and rock. The headlights hit this thing. I noticed it wasn't on all fours, but it was standing there like a man. I floored the truck as hard as I could, but I wasn't prepared for the next part. When I looked in the rear view, I saw this thing chasing after the truck, and my heart nearly gave out when the truck suddenly died. Luckily, it started again after a couple of tries. I floored it once more, and we somehow made it home. Back at home, we threw the front door open. My uncle's girlfriend looked at us in shock, asking what the rush was about. We told her, and once we calmed down, she said, it Sounds like a skinwalker. My grandma used to tell me all about him. Well, whatever that thing was, I'll never work or go near that place again. If you're living in southern Indiana, be careful out there, and make sure your cattle are safe. The Lady in the Window From Back 40 TV I've never shared this experience with anyone. This'll be my first time ever telling the story. When you're in my line of work and you begin to tell ghost stories, you get looked at funny. But here goes. I am a sheriff's deputy from a rural region of the South. I've been on the job for nearly ten years. This incident happened back in 2014, and I'd been on the job for three years at the time. The town where I grew up and still live today was small, a lower population as with many rural communities. One of those places you hear about, where everyone knows almost everybody else. Yeah, that's the one. There used to be a small house just outside of town that has been known to be haunted. It had been there a long time. Even me and a few buddies used to go there and ghost hunt. It was a small house, one of those old creepy houses with the weird floor plan. It had a second floor with two windows facing the roadway. The grounds were grown up. It appeared it had been abandoned for many, many years. The rumors we all heard as kids when we learned about the place was that the lady who used to live there hung herself in the front yard from one of the large oak tree branches, which stretched across the path to the front door. Of course, we never believed the lady really hung herself there, 
but the feeling you would get just walking onto the grounds, it would send a chill up your spine. All of the times my friends and I went there, nothing ever really happened, though. Fast forward to my grown-up years, I hadn't been to the house in years, but I'd heard someone new purchased the place, and no one was allowed there anymore. On one of those slow nights at work, I was sitting in my good old trusty Crown Victoria, honestly kind of bored. It was about 2 a.m. when I got a call for service. My dispatcher sent me to the address of that same old haunted house. A passerby said they were driving down the small gravel road and heard screaming coming from the residence. My first thought was this was some kid who heard the stories and was playing some weird prank. I was only about six or eight minutes from the house, so I made my way there. When I pulled up to the place, it looked exactly as I remembered it from when I was a teenager. The same creepy trees stretching over the pathway to the front door and all that. I notified my dispatcher I was at the residence, and I would be out of my unit to check the grounds for trespassers. I exited my patrol car and began approaching the front. A bit of nostalgia fell over me as I reminisced about the times we used to have as teenagers. I was about twenty feet from the door when I heard a noise coming from inside the house on the second floor. Now suspecting a possible trespassing or some large wild animal, I made the decision to go inside and check it out. Back when I worked for this department, it was small. Only two guys on the beat at night and my partner was all the way across town. I didn't want to call him all the way out here just to find a possum scratching around. I opened the front door and stepped up into the residence, staying as quiet as possible and holding my hand to cover 95% of the beam illuminated from my flashlight in case there was someone inside. As soon as I entered, I felt an absolute feeling of dread fall over me, like knowing something was wrong. It was the feeling of someone watching me, that feeling in the pit of your stomach, all of it at once. As a cop, this is like your spidey sense, and we all pay close attention to our gut feelings. I drew my service weapon, standard procedure for clearing houses with possible intruders, and I began to clear the residence. I made my way up to the very narrow stairwell to the second floor. I began checking rooms. I entered the first one, which faces the front of the house with two windows. Immediately upon entering, my spine went cold. Something about this room made me feel uneasy. The hairs on my neck and arms stood up worse than I'd ever felt before. I swear I heard a voice while I was in that room. Something whispering. Praise. But I chalked it up as my mind playing tricks due to the creepy feelings I had. I finished checking the residence and found nothing. No trespassers, no animals. The house was empty. I made my way outside, and that feeling someone was watching me got even more intense. As I walked to my car, I periodically turned to shine my flashlight behind me. That feeling of being watched was really getting to me, but still I saw nothing. As I approached my patrol vehicle, 
I felt a little more at ease, maybe for the sense of safety inside the cruiser. I reached down and pulled my key from my duty belt to unlock the door. I slid the key into the lock and looked back toward the house while I unlocked the door. And that's what I saw. Dimly illuminated by the moonlight in the far right window on the second floor was a woman standing there, staring right at me. She was pale and wearing a long black dress that seemed it would date back to the early 1900s. Her gaze was fixed on me. I froze, not necessarily in fear, but a mix of my mind processing everything from, is this a ghost? Is it a trespasser? Should I go back inside? Then reality set in. I had just left from inside the house moments ago. No one had been in there. Yet there she was now. Then I realized this was the room I felt so uneasy in, where I thought I'd heard that voice. I felt sick to my stomach. I blinked my eyes hard and rubbed them with both hands. When I opened them, she was gone. I quickly opened my door and got inside my vehicle. I sat there for a second to gather myself before driving. I reached up and pulled the shift handle into reverse and turned on the headlights. As the headlights shined on the front pathway, she was now standing there, about halfway from the road to the front of the house, just staring at me. I backed quickly from the driveway and left the area. I can't explain to you what I saw that night, but I know it wasn't natural in the normal sense of how we understand things. Most of you can understand why I've never told this story before, but it was one of the creepiest things I've ever experienced. I learned about six months after the incident, the new owner had the house torn down, so I don't think I'll ever understand. But I often wonder if the voice I heard was the lady asking for help when she said, Please. Something huge and dangerous lives in our small lake. From SEB 32 I live in southern Florida, and in my neighborhood we have a variety of lakes. There are large lakes connected to other lakes, and some that are just one small canal, which don't connect into any other waterway. I've lived in my neighborhood, which I enjoy fishing in, and I have for my whole life. You're probably wondering that I shouldn't be fishing too much in those lakes. It is southern Florida, and can be dangerous. Now, before going fishing, I would often go to Bass Pro, a place where you can get any type of bait and tackle for fishing. Just before the whole isolation things went down, I'd recently gone there to pick up some fresh chicken livers for catfish fishing. The catfish we usually have are placos, bullhead catfish, and channel catfish. The biggest ones we have in the lakes are the channel catfish, who can be about three feet long and seventy pounds. There soon came a day that changed my opinions on these lakes, and it happened only about a month ago as of writing this. Now, for me, fishing was pretty much the only thing I could do while being isolated. 
I had been fishing for about an hour in the separate lakes, which connected into others, and at one point I decided to try my luck in the small lake that didn't connect to any other. I had no luck in the others, so I went over there. This lake was probably 150 feet across and about 30 feet wide, so you can get the idea of how small it is. It was gradually getting darker then. It was around 5 o'clock, I think. I cast my line into the water a good 20 feet away, waiting for it to sink to the bottom. Catfish are bottom feeders, after all. After waiting about five minutes and playing around on my phone, I felt a sharp tug. I waited, then set the hook. Within a few seconds, I saw a small bullhead catfish about a foot long squirming around in the water. As I was getting the fish to the bank, something I didn't see tugged on my line, but with such a powerful strike that the rod nearly broke in two and that rod could handle a hundred pounds. My line snapped, and I fell backwards hard. The catfish was gone, and so was the rest of my line. What could have done that? A catfish so huge. I'd seen big catfish in the lake, but not one that could break my line that easily. As I mentioned before, you had to be aware of certain dangers in the lakes around here, which included alligators, but in these parts, all the alligators were removed or exterminated. Unless the people had missed some, which I doubted, because when all of them had been removed, the people had captured about fifty of them, and that's a lot of gators. Snakehead fish, an invasive species that had been eating the fish in our lakes for a few years, couldn't have been responsible either. My line was graded and could withstand teeth, and no snakehead can outmuscle one hundred pounds of breaking strength. I had no hooks on me, and besides, it was getting dark. I decided to wrap it up and go home. I could use some chicken liver for tomorrow. I'd get up early and get out again. I wondered, though, what could that thing have been? As I got up the next morning at around eight, I got ready to go again. I'd start at the same lake where I'd nearly caught the other catfish. I positioned myself a good distance away from the bank, thinking that, indeed, it may have been an alligator, so it would be a good idea to stay away from the edge. As I cast my line, I happened to look to my left, and to my surprise, I saw a dead bullseye snakehead, that invasive fish I mentioned. It had been cut in half. I didn't know what kind of predator could have done that to a snakehead, and the idea of an alligator filled my thoughts again. As I left my line for one moment, I headed over to the dead fish. It was clearly split in half, innards splayed. I could see the visible teeth marks on it too, and these were huge teeth. Even if it was a gator, it wouldn't have left the fish here, and would have eaten it within moments. Suddenly, my neighbor, Mr. Tom, stepped up to me. Hey, son, I saw that fish last night. It just washed up on the bank, and along came the rest of it a couple seconds later. I asked, Do you think it could have been a gator? Mr. Tom shook his head. No alligator would have done that. I haven't seen one since they took them all out. Besides, they would have come up and sunned themselves after all, and I ain't seen none of that. 
must be another type of fish. It was true. An alligator or a crocodile would have to come up and sun themselves every once in a while. Something strange was going on in this lake. I thanked Mr. Tom, and he went back into his house. I continued fishing for a while, and then I felt another hard tug. I reeled in a smaller blue catfish after about a minute. To my shock, as I was taking the hook out of its mouth, I happened to glance over at the water, and what I saw made me jump back. I could make out a shadow about five feet from the bank, just sitting there. Yeah, there are plants and tall weeds in the water, but these were not weeds. No weeds could have been this shape. Plus, the water is clean. It couldn't be a pile of litter. And this shadow was big. I swear on my life, the front of it looked like an oval with a flat head. The shadow had to have been at least 25 feet, and this lake could get 40 feet deep. You can call me crazy, but I'm not kidding. This thing seemed to have fins on the side, like a shark, but these fins were bigger and wider than a shark. I couldn't see much else. I desperately tried to look for a tail of some kind. Then I saw it slowly seem to sink. When the last of the shadow was gone, I looked at the catfish. It was nearly dead, feebly flopping around. I realized I'd been staring at the shadow for a while. I quickly threw the fish back in the water. I quickly packed up my stuff and prepared to leave, thinking I probably would never come back to this lake. That's when I heard a splash. I whipped my head around and saw a giant head. It was a sort of grayish color. It was clamping the catfish I had just thrown back in its jaws. And these jaws were full of razor-sharp teeth, at least four inches in length. Suddenly, the head dipped back into the water, along with it, the catfish. I was in disbelief, horrified of what I had just seen. The head was definitely not a shark or alligators, and when I researched this thing later to see what it could have been, the only thing similar to what I saw was the Dunkleosteus, a prehistoric sea creature. I couldn't see the tail of the thing in the lake, so I couldn't match its tail or body with this prehistoric monster. The teeth were a bit different, not bony and looking like a guillotine. Like the teeth of a Dunkleosteus, the creature I saw in the lake had razor-sharp teeth in about two rows. The creature was also about twenty to twenty-five feet long, and a Dunkleosteus was said to be about thirty feet. So... I don't know what the heck I saw, but I've since stopped fishing in that lake. My questions are, could it have been a Dunkleosteus? But how could it be something that supposedly went extinct for millions of years? And what the heck is it doing in a freshwater lake that's not even as big as a regular-sized canal? Could there be a passageway? And how can it not have been seen by anyone else but me? There are so many answers I'd like to know. I don't even know what something like that would do to me if it got a hold of me, especially being able to rip apart a catfish like that. Just in case, when I fish in the other lakes, I stay away from the bank, and I never put as much as a finger in the water to release fish. I just throw them back, 
a good distance away from the edge. I'm not making this up. Again, you can call me crazy. Think of this story or me what you will. But all I'm saying is, there's something in the smallest lake in my neighborhood lurking beneath the shallows, and I don't think it's a gator or a crocodile. Do not touch the shadows from Beta H. This took place at my new school, when an event that day had everyone from school gathered in the stadium. The sun was high in the sky and hitting us all with its typical Georgia heat. We were all waiting for the pep rally to begin. I was sitting at the edge of the bleachers, all the way in a corner, so I could avoid people. I'm not very outgoing, and people tend to recognize that here. So I had a good swath of bleachers to myself, as did a few others, while the cliques were almost literally piled on top of each other in good fun. Then a small hand, roughly the size of a toddler's, and black as the floor of the ocean, shimmied its way between the metal flooring of the bleachers and grabbed hold of my shoe. I screamed at the sudden touch, kicking at it, only to find that I would simply pass right through it. People were looking at me in surprise as I pulled my feet close to my body and rested my back in the corner of the wall that the bleachers were up against. Y'all didn't see that? I half screamed, flinching at a bug that suddenly landed on me. The students were all pale, but obviously not shocked. One of the more staunch jocks had even left the scene. Uh, yeah, our school has those. Just keep away from the shadows here and you'll be fine. A girl stated in an awfully calm, matter-of-factly voice. But I was horrified. What did she mean by those? Was I being pranked? And why were the adults and students all acting like they simply accepted it as fact? I began observing everyone near me. All of the students and staff had their bodies in the sunlight. Not even a strand of their hair touched the shadows inside the school. Their belongings were in their laps, too, or in their hands or on their backs, all of which were illuminated by the sun. I would eventually learn more about the legend in the school. Some kids said that they were shaped like little cherubs. Others said that they were shaped like dogs, goats, and bulls. And a few are just formless shapes, apparently. Some folks suspect they're demons. Others think they're devil worshippers who were cursed. I, for one, don't care what they are. They're in the shadows, and one misstep could lead to one's worst nightmares coming true. I've heard that a guy here ended up getting diagnosed with stage 4 leukemia after taking a dare to immerse himself in the shadows and try to fight off one of those things. I also heard about a guy who went into the shadows for a brief second and ended up having to get 18 stitches. Nowadays, I take white sage wherever I go, and I pray that that's enough to keep me safe in case I make one bad step. Why We Disliked Visiting Edmond, Oklahoma From Nagi Naue 101 Growing up, I've had my share of hauntings. I grew up across from the Brook Forest Inn in Evergreen, Colorado, 
Those ghosts are nothing compared to what my sister and I encountered while growing up and going to my grandmother's house over the summer. My grandfather kind of knew what was going on, but hey, I can't be sure he knew anything. The things I encountered in that house were when I was between five and seven, then again when I was sixteen. My sister, though, she experienced it all in its glory at the age of twenty-four. Back when I was between five and seven years old, my sister and I had to spend a couple of weeks at my grandparents while my parents were busy moving to our home across from Brook Forest Inn to the house we lived in until 1990. The move was a rough one since I had a nasty hay fever, and my grandma and grandpa decided to take us to their house. You would think this was a great idea, but no. Things were weird on the way there, and while we were there. The house they lived in was a single-level home with three bedrooms, one master and two smaller rooms, two and a half bathrooms and a utility room. The thing about the utility bathroom is no matter what plants my grandmother put in there to make it look nice, they would all die within a week of being there. So for this trip, my sister and I shared a bedroom with grandma, which was fine. The bed was huge, and the funny thing about it was my mom as a child wrote Zorro into the headboard. The night we arrived after being on the road for eight hours, my sister and I were exhausted. We went straight to bed, but I was having trouble sleeping. During road trips as a kid, I would get these earaches, and my grandma and grandpa would try to use earwashes that never worked. That night I woke up with the biggest earache ever. My grandmother and sister were fast asleep, so I walked into the hallway, which is lit up with a nightlight, because, well, it made sense to have one in the hallway if you needed to go to the bathroom. The light would also light up part of the living room, where you could see grandfather's ugly-as-heck lounger, which was atomic orange. This thing was so easy to see, but that night you couldn't see it at all. It was like there was this giant black mass taking over the living room, and confining the light to just that hallway. I stood there, staring and though I was a little kid, something just didn't feel right. Then I felt a pressure in my ears, like the kind you'd get when you changed elevation and it needed to pop. I walked into the bathroom, turned on the light, and proceeded to look for a Q-tip. No sooner had I attempted to put the thing in my ear, my grandfather knocked on the door, breaking me from what I was doing and asking me why I was trying to do that. He later went into the kitchen and heated up a towel in the microwave, sending me to bed. I never told him what I saw in the living room. In fact, I totally brushed it off as I thought it was my imagination going on overdrive. Years later at 16, we went to my grandmother's house yet again, this time for Christmas. My dad conveniently killed the Christmas tree and, in frustration, my mom packed up our gifts and we just went over to our grandparents'. I was sitting in the car dreading this, because you guessed it, I was well aware something was always wrong with that house in Oklahoma. I never said anything when we arrived. I quickly took to the fold-out bed in the couch. I immediately felt that something was wrong. I mean, seriously wrong. My father and grandmother were in the dining room talking about getting a new tree, and I saw something standing behind her. To describe what I saw, people have said it was a demon, but I have no idea. 
I was either sick or my imagination was going wild. I was staring at this human-shaped person. They were dressed in brown overalls, kind of like the turn of the century. As I studied what I was looking at, my eyes went to its face, of course, but there was no face at all, just a black pit with red eyes. My father said that he saw all the color drain from my face. I went right back to bed. No one saw what I saw, and for the most part, I didn't tell anyone until I was twenty-nine, and my sister was telling me her horror story. My sister's experience was different. After my grandfather died, my grandmother was someone who became very negative, and I was sort of wary of her, because she was very judgy. I decided I needed to have my own life. She expected me to move to her house in Oklahoma to take care of the place, but my sister went instead. I was thankful, but what I got was a series of disturbing phone calls one day when I was twenty-five. I'd been heading home from class when my sister was calling me on the cell phone. She told me something was wrong with the house, just a series of small things at first. Drains would suddenly be clogged, so I told her to call a plumber. She also complained of strange smells and something weird going on in the utility bathroom. Then came another call, one that I thought was extremely weird. I made practicing Wiccan and knew things about the supernatural. My sister, who had basically been an atheist, asked me a series of questions. She said that her roommate, who was helping take care of the house, started to sleepwalk and ended up sleeping in the kitchen facing the utility bathroom. Then there were voices, which my sister wouldn't tell me what they said. One day while getting on a bus, my sister called in a panic saying that her roommate began to sleepwalk right into the kitchen, where she and her then-boyfriend were having an argument. Her roommate then curled up on the kitchen floor. I told her not to wake her friend, but her boyfriend did, and the girl flipped out. After they calmed down... I told them how to bless the place with salt water. I told them to do it exactly the way I said it, and how I did it. My sister, who again was atheist, started to believe in the fact that there are some things in the world you can't explain. I also had them contact Grandma's priest. He refused to even help us, by the way, and she had to do the house blessing as I instructed her. I sent two seals as well, one for her to carry in her wallet, which she carried till the day she died in October 2019. She also put the other seal on the door to the utility bathroom, which I was convinced that negative energy was coming from. She was told to go room to room, doing the pentacle, and saying, This house is blessed. No negative energy may dwell here. So mote it be. She had to say this in every room. She called me after she did the blessing and confirmed that the sill was to remain in place until the house was sold. Within that week, my grandmother passed away. My sister and I had our meeting after she got back, and I finally said, Well, I thought I was the only one who saw all those things. I'm sorry. To this day, I will check on the house and see it from Google Maps, but I'll never set foot in the place again. Not even if someone paid me. Careful Moving Into New Places From Guzman 
This happened to me while I was renting an apartment in Boston, as I was finishing my master's in the U.S. I'm not easily scared. In fact, I quite like it if a scary movie actually manages to frighten me. However, this series of events, which took place in the Boston apartment complex, terrifies me every time I recall them, especially when I'm alone at home, even though I left that place many years ago. So I was living in Massachusetts as a foreign exchange student from 2009 to 2012. The last few months of my living in Boston were chaotic, to say the least. I had some pretty bad financial problems due to an unfortunate issue with gaining access to my scholarship money. I was struggling to pay the rent on the previous place I'd been living in for a while. It was by all means a great place, close to the university, and within walking distance of markets with clean streets, and an overall pretty safe feel. But as life under grad school would have it, money soon became an issue, and I had to move out. Finding a new place was relatively straightforward, because a friend of a friend was moving out of her own apartment around the same time. Her building was about an hour's bus ride away from where I studied, and in a not-so-nice part of town. Not ideal, but given my situation, I had little option. I spoke to the girl and the landlady by phone, and they both agreed to allow me to move in when the apartment was vacated, which only took a few days as she seemed to be in quite a hurry. I didn't think much of it at the time, but looking back on it now, I should have been more keen to the fact that she also seemed very distressed just before leaving. And I mean more distressed than a person moving out should be. She seemed to be in such a hurry, in fact, that she even left a few of her belongings in the apartment. I called her and our mutual friend several times to try to arrange for her or someone to pick up her things, but to no avail. Apparently, she wanted nothing to do with that place anymore. Honestly, after what I experienced, I don't blame her. The new building was pretty big, about ten stories high and pretty run down, with ugly stained mustard yellows and avocado greens adorning the long, dark hallways with the occasional ominous flickering lights. The first few nights were uneventful, minus the annoying cockroach problems which I was certainly not happy with, but I couldn't do much about it, other than reaching out to the landlady to request an exterminator, though she always seemed to put it off, as if to suggest cockroaches would be the least of my concerns. And how right she was. One night, while I was studying and listening to some music, I heard a strange knocking coming from somewhere in the apartment. After I noticed it, I turned the music down, trying to identify its cause and source. At first, I suspected the old piping or the vents, but upon listening further, I realized it sounded distinctly wooden, like someone lightly hitting and scraping a heavy blunt object on a wooden surface. I walked around, thinking it might be someone above or below me, shifting furniture, or maybe a neighbor nailing something to an adjacent wall. But the sounds were almost rhythmic in nature as if the person producing it were intentionally following a musical sequence, which incorporated scrapes, knocks, and dull thuds to create a melody. I walked out into the living room, and as soon as I did, the noises stopped, as if whatever was making them knew that I was close. This sent shivers down my spine, and I felt a sensation of imminent danger. 
The silence dragged on for a few seconds, though it seemed to last an eternity, until finally a single sharp knock came from the entrance door, making me jump and curse out loud in fear. I didn't move from where I was and just called out, voice slightly trembling. Who is it? There was no response. Hello? Who is it? Please? I tried to make my voice sound manlier and more burly, but there was still no response. I looked down at the space between the door and the floor and noticed that the motion-sensitive lights were off even though there was definitely someone knocking at the door. I took a step forward, making the floorboards creak ever so slightly, and as soon as I did so, the motion sensor lights went off outside my door. I realized someone had indeed been standing motionless outside this entire time. I rushed over and peered into the peephole. Nothing but an empty hallway... I tried to notice any motion or listen out for anyone walking away, but nothing happened, and soon the lights turned off, leaving nothing but darkness. I made sure to check the locks and even shut the windows before going back to my room, confused and somewhat mad at the possibility that some idiot neighbor was pulling a prank on me at this time of night. As the days turned into a week, strange things continued to happen. Sometimes it was the darn knocking, and sometimes, I swear, I could hear shuffling noises coming from outside, and every time I looked, there was no one there. This was especially strange, because when I asked an upstairs neighbor, Jin, who else lived near our apartment, she looked around nervously, as if trying to think of a lie first, before saying, No one. Before I could continue and tell her about the noises at my door, she interrupted me. There was a young woman who lived in the apartment right in front of yours, until about two years ago. She proceeded to tell me that the woman was pretty and polite, though she mostly kept to herself. But things changed when she got involved with some pretty shady guys who would come around to her apartment and stay the entire night, blasting loud music and doing certain substances. Sometimes, one of these men, who was maybe a boyfriend or an ex, would come around, and the two would fight until things got violent. The police would have to be called. After a while, the man started to stand in front of her door for hours, just knocking and scratching at the wooden surface, with what some people speculated was a firearm. One afternoon, Jin told me the landlady knocked at the woman's apartment to collect the rent. After trying several times throughout the day, no one answered the door. The landlady spoke to the neighbors, including Jin, who lived in the apartment I was staying in at the time. They all said that they hadn't seen or heard of the woman or her stalker for days. The concerned landlady tried knocking some more, until finally opening her locked door with a spare key. According to Jen, the landlady walked inside and inspected the place, noticing the utter chaos of the young woman's apartment. With a disgusted look, Jen proceeded to report that there were piles of dirty dishes all over, cockroaches crawling freely and unafraid, dirty sheets draped over the closed windows, and even the rotting corpse of an emaciated cat under the woman's bed. But no sign of the woman who lived there. <laughs> 
It was as if she just picked up and left everything behind, possibly to escape the stalker. However, the landlady eventually found the woman's key to the apartment on a counter, which as far as she was aware was the only other copy besides her own. Unless, perhaps, the young woman's stalker made other copies. Whatever the case, no one ever saw or heard from the young woman again, and whenever new people would move into or near the woman's previous apartment, they would hear strange knocking noises several nights in a row, Jin included. After the incident, Jin and several other people began hearing knocking sounds coming from their own doors, and whenever they would check, there would be nobody. I was frankly creeped out and very concerned. Could that psycho stalker still be looking for the poor woman and harassing other tenants? Whatever the case, it seemed Jin was all too familiar with my shocked expression, as if she had seen it several times before. She just shrugged and wished me luck. That night, I was on the phone with my boyfriend. I told him about my disconcerting conversation with Jin, and he, being much more superstitious than me, told me to be careful and to try to leave the place as soon as possible. Though, to be frank, I was amused at his theories and was much more concerned about the possibility of a living, breathing, crazy person than ghosts. Just before turning in for the night, I heard the knocks again. This time, I was determined to see my harasser's face before threatening him with the police. I tiptoed as quietly as I could from the bathroom to the living room. I was in the dark, and being careful so as to not step on any of the noisier floorboards. As I approached, I noticed from the gap between the door and the floor that the lights outside were off. Again, I heard scratches and knocking making me extremely angry, though I held it in. Finally reaching the door, I looked into the peephole, my heart pounding so hard I could feel the pulses in my skull. Blackness, though. As my eyes adjusted to the dark, I began to make out what appeared to be a large hooded figure, standing slightly off to the left of my line of sight. I could even hear heavy breathing, as if this person had been running a marathon. He was huge judging from the visible shoulder. I was petrified, and my mind began to rush as the adrenaline kicked in. He was motionless. Finally, the large man moved fully to my line of sight, causing the motion sensors to trigger the lights, illuminating a horribly disfigured face. His left cheek was sunken inwards, showing a hideous scar running from his lower cheek up to his temple. His soulless eyes stared directly into mine. I fell backward, crashing onto the floor as I began calling out that I was armed and that I had called the police. Both of these were, of course, lies. I hurried back to my feet when I noticed that the doorknob was moving back and forth as I heard what sounded like someone attempting to unlock my door. Again, I made false threats, this time more out of desperation than anything as I braced myself for either a fight or a daring escape. I eyed an open window, evaluating my chances of survival if I were to fall from the fifth floor. No good. As quickly as it had started, the motion at the door had stopped. I looked back, almost completely out of breath. Silence. The lights again turned off outside. I stood there waiting, 
gathering my senses to go back to my room and call the police. Before I could do so, I heard the single most dreadful sound I'd ever heard. The unmistakable sound of a firearm being cocked. I darted out of the living room, running into my bedroom and shutting the door as I ran toward my phone. I called 911 and told the operator someone was trying to break into my apartment. I stood at the corner, holding a lamp which I was ready to weaponize against my intruder. But nothing happened. A few minutes passed. The crushing anxiety was unbearable until, finally, I heard someone call, Police! Finally, I breathed a sigh of relief. I called out for help. I cautiously walked out of my bedroom, only to find the two officers already standing in my living room, the door wide open, unlocked. The police did a full sweep of the building and found nothing. I didn't sleep in my apartment that night, preferring to stay with a friend. I moved out the following afternoon, and from that day on, I always inquire about the history of any new place I move into, and about its previous tenants. A Pair of Creepy Stalkers in Georgia From Mary Jane 737 This happened in the 1990s. When I was in college, I had a job working at a jewelry store. I worked for this chain for about two years. The first store I worked at was located in a shopping center in a nearby town outside of Savannah. It was a small town that was kind of blue-collar, but our store did very well, and it always made money. Even though it was kind of out in the boonies, I liked working there, because it was relaxed, down-to-earth, and the fact that the other employees were very good to me. That store also had great hours. We opened at 10 a.m. every morning and closed at 6 sharp every evening, and we were closed on Sundays. That wasn't too bad for a retail job. I was in my early 20s at the time and had just gotten out of a toxic relationship. I had my fair share of men of all ages who would approach me and ask me to go out on dates with them. But despite this, I was very shy, lacking self-confidence. And unfortunately for me, very few men who approached me fit the criteria of what I was looking for. The men that I considered to be the most desirable always seemed to be taken. So I would sometimes accept invitations to go out with men that I wasn't really attracted to. I thought that I would give them a chance to see if they had anything else to offer, beyond just physical attractiveness, maybe a good personality and integrity. I know this probably sounds incredibly shallow to many of you, but I was very young at the time, and I know a lot of young people think exactly the same way I did. There were two men who stood out from the rest, and this wasn't because of their physical attractiveness or sense of humor. It was because they were both creeps. One of these creeps looked like a rough country bumpkin. He wasn't attractive, and he was kind of heavy-set. All the same, I tried to be nice and polite to people, and I remember talking to him on one occasion and noticing that he had kind of bad teeth, and that his clothes looked a little worn and outdated. I would estimate his age to have been mid to late thirties at the time. He didn't ask me out, but he was a little too friendly. Nothing else out of the ordinary happened during that encounter, and I didn't think much of it, until much later, when we would cross paths again in an unexpected way.
When I was still employed at the jewelry store and the shopping center, I had a strange encounter with a man who would change the way that I viewed the world and who would shake my trust in people. This was definitely a wake-up call for me. I went to work one cool autumn day when my classes were over, just as I normally did. Not long after beginning my shift, a rather short, thin, and dark-haired man, who looked to be in his mid-thirties, came into the store and began looking at some merchandise. Other than being clean-cut in appearance, there was nothing else that stood out about him. His features were nondescript. He wasn't especially handsome, but not ugly either. It was my job to greet customers and ask them if they needed any assistance, so I asked if he needed any help. He started talking to me about the merchandise, but our conversation quickly shifted towards me. He made the comment that he had noticed that I had started my shift late that day, and he asked me if I was taking college classes anywhere. I told him that I was. He began to tell me that he owned his own business, and that he was always on the lookout for new employees to come and work for him. I asked him what kind of business he had, but he would not elaborate. He simply said that he was in the business of making something, and he then asked me if I might like to work for him. He started saying that I would make much more money working for him than I did in retail. He seemed to know that my job only paid minimum wage. I have to admit that I thought it was strange that he wouldn't tell me the name of his business, or what kind of business it was, but he had a good rap, and for a few minutes he sounded pretty convincing. At that time in my life, I was very young and naive, and I didn't know much about running a business. The man then asked me to meet him after work, so that we could discuss this job opportunity that he had for me. I hesitated for a moment, and then he told me that I could meet him at a nearby Arby's fast food place. I thought about it for a few more seconds, and then I reluctantly agreed to meet him. He suggested that we meet at 6.30, though our store closed at 6. We employees still had to put away a good bit of the merchandise, including locking up the most valuable pieces in a safe, and we had to do a few other things before leaving. After he was gone, I kept having these nagging doubts about him. During the time that we talked to each other in the store, he never once gave me any indication that he was interested in me romantically. He seemed to be all business. But I still had this nagging thought that perhaps he really wanted more from me, and that this was just a setup. On the other hand, I also thought that he might be telling the truth, and that I might miss out on an opportunity if I didn't at least talk to him. I finally decided to drive over to Arby's to meet him. The women I worked with in the store were always very nice to me and somewhat protective, because most of them were older than I was. But on that particular day, none of them had paid any attention to this clean-cut-looking man who I'd been talking to, so none of them knew my plans to meet him. I deliberately tarried around the store for as long as I could because I was just so unsure about what to do. I finally decided to go ahead and meet up with him. I figured we'd be meeting in a public place, so I'd be safe, right? So I drove out of the shopping center parking lot, heading over to Arby's, which was literally right next door. Because I had procrastinated for so long, I was late for our meeting. His car was leaving the parking lot just as mine was turning into it. I guess he was tired of waiting for me and had just decided to leave. 
but we did make eye contact with each other. This was undeniable because his eyes met mine. I thought he was serious about this job offer. I expected him to roll down the window and say something like, Sorry, you're too late, or to point at his wristwatch and shake his head. But he didn't do any of those things. Instead, he quickly took off like a scared rabbit. I'll never forget the look he had on his face. He looked nervous and scared as if he had been caught with his pants down. That told me everything I needed to know right there. He obviously didn't have good intentions, and this may have been a setup. I didn't know what exactly his plans were, but I felt as if I had dodged a bullet. I was also ashamed of myself for being so gullible and agreeing to meet up with him. I quickly forgot about this incident and continued on with my life. I didn't think I'd see him again. I figured that he had a wife and kids, and the last thing he wanted was for his wife to know that he had been planning to cheat on her with another woman. I thought that he wouldn't dare show his face around my place of employment as long as I was still working there, but I was wrong. About six months later, I was still working for the same chain, but I transferred to another location. I wasn't happy with its long hours and constantly being asked to stay late or to work on my only day off. I was working at the mall location one Saturday afternoon when a small, thin, dark-haired man came into the store and immediately began chatting with me. Now I must point out the fact that I didn't immediately recognize the man as being the same man that I'd met at my previous place of employment. I hadn't given the man I met about four or five months earlier a second thought. So this man that approached me in the mall that day seemed friendly at first. He was fairly small in stature, about five foot six, about the same height as me. Really, though, the only thing that stood out about him were his eyes. They had a glint of shininess to them. The man and I talked for several minutes. He mentioned that he had seen me working at the other location, the store in the shopping center, but I told him that I didn't remember him, which was true. I had a lot going on in my life with trying to balance work and college, and I had almost forgotten about the creepy guy who wanted to give me a job. He also said that one of my co-workers had told him that I transferred to the mall, so apparently he also knew my first name. I innocently continued speaking to him. At some point he began to ask some questions which seemed a little too personal, but I didn't think much of it. Not yet. He told me his name, first and last, then asked my last name, which I thought was kind of strange. But I told him. He also asked me what my age was and if I was single. Those questions are pretty typical, so I told him my age and that I didn't have a serious boyfriend. He then asked me if I might like to go out with him sometime in the future. I wasn't completely sure if I was interested or not. I had just met him but I thought there was no harm in giving him my phone number. I thought, what's the worst that could happen? During the time that I was speaking to this man, I noticed that the store manager kept watching us and that he had a very serious look on his face. I thought he was watching me because I was talking to Glenn too much and not working. Glenn finally left the store and I went back to work. I was taking some of the less expensive merchandise that was locked away below our cases and putting it out on display. As I was doing this, I noticed that a creepy-looking man was watching me through one of our display windows at the entrance of the store. I could only see his face, 
and not the rest of his body. I was wearing a short sheath dress that day, which had a back vent, and I suddenly became aware of the fact that he was watching me as I was bending over. I had been previously warned on a couple of occasions by some other employees about bending over while wearing that dress. One older lady that I worked with told me that she could see everything whenever I bent over. I became embarrassed when I realized what was happening, but I tried to pretend that I didn't see the man watching me, and I stopped bending over at that point. The one thing that I remember most about the man at the window was the way that he looked at me. The only way that I can describe this look was that it was both lust and hatred, and it frightened me. A short time later, the store manager said that he wanted to speak to me. I walked over to where he was standing, thinking that I was in trouble for talking too much to a customer. But that wasn't it. My manager warned me. I think you better be careful with that guy. He seems a little strange. He was referring to the man who had asked my number. What do you mean? I asked. My manager hesitated for a moment and then said that he had watched the man talk to me, and something about him gave off a bad vibe. But that wasn't the only thing. He said that once the man left the store, he noticed that he was looking at me through our display window at the store's entrance, and he was watching me each time that I bent over. Now, the manager was a handsome family man, and he'd always behaved very professionally towards me. So I never once thought he was hitting on me or flirting with me. He was in his early thirties at the time and had always been pleasant to work with. But he was now talking to me in a very serious and fatherly tone. He seemed to be genuinely concerned, and I knew he was not joking. He said that he was a man who looked at girls just like most other normal men do, but... He said that he'd never looked at a girl the way he saw that man look at me. He said that it was creepy, and that he also noticed that the man's eyes were red and glassy, as if he had been drinking, or was under some sort of other influence. I thought to myself, he's right. His eyes did look weird. I knew there was something a little strange about them, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And I also hadn't realized that the same man that I'd been talking to in the store earlier was the same one watching me through the display window. I felt foolish for being too trusting, and for telling him my full name and even giving him my phone number. My manager told me to be careful about going to the parking lot after work, especially at night, and when he found out that I had parked further away than most of the other employees, he offered to drive me to my car. I accepted the ride, and he warned me again about being careful with that strange man. I had decided that my manager was right, and that I would just brush off the guy if he ever called me. I would just give him some excuse about not being able to go out with him. I thought that he would eventually get tired of being given the runaround and would give up, but I had no idea how determined the guy was. Now, because this happened many years ago, my memory is a little foggy about the exact sequence of events that transpired next. I believe that the next thing that happened was that Glenn attempted to call me a few times. This happened back in the 1990s, and my roommate and I didn't have caller ID on our phone. Everyone had landlines back then. Our phone number was listed under my name, so he could have easily looked up my name and found my address that way. I believe I gave the guy some excuse that I couldn't talk the first time that he called. I distinctly remember him calling another time and my roommate answering. 
I had told her about him beforehand, and she already knew that I didn't want to talk to him, so she silently mouthed the words, It's him, while on the phone. I shook my head, indicating that I did not want to speak to him, so she told him that I wasn't at home. He then called again, and I firmly told him myself that I was not interested in going out, not with him. I didn't know what else to say, but I was hoping that that would get rid of him. He didn't blow up on the phone, but I could tell by his voice that he was not happy, that he was a bit surprised, too. He asked why I had given him my phone number if I didn't want to go out with him. I told him that I'd made a mistake, hoping that he would understand and leave me alone. I didn't know what else to say at this point, but there was no way that I was going to go out with him. I said goodbye and hung up the phone, hoping that that would be the last time I'd ever hear from him. But it wasn't. My roommate and I didn't have a washer and dryer in the apartment, so we had to use a laundromat, even though I had a car. It wasn't unusual for me to walk instead of drive, and I often walked to the laundromat carrying my laundry in a basket. I didn't mind walking because parking was scarce in the downtown area where I lived, and I liked to get plenty of fresh air and exercise. So one day while I was leaving the laundromat, I saw a car that was stopped on a little side road, and I heard a man calling out to me in a friendly voice as if he knew me. I knew many people from college and from the place I worked, so I figured it must be someone that I'd met. I walked up to the window on the passenger side, and imagine my shock when I see that man sitting there in the driver's seat. I tried to be nice to him. We both said hi to each other, and then he asked me what I was doing. I told him that I was doing my laundry, and as I was talking to him, I looked at the interior of the car. It was off-putting. It was messy and had some old bags from fast food places. I also noticed that his car was older, and his eyes were once again glossy and red. He still had that same look in his eyes, that look of lust and hate. I think he saw that I had noticed that his car was both old and messy, and in some strange way, this hurt his feelings. It seemed as if he knew that I thought he was a loser. He then surprised me even more by boldly asking me if he could come over to my place. I was stunned by this question. Had he gotten the message the first time? Hadn't I made myself clear to him? I politely said no and that I was too busy, and I walked off. I purposely went back to the laundromat and waited several minutes, hoping he would leave. After I thought enough time had passed, I walked back home and didn't see him again for a while, thinking I'd finally gotten rid of him. One day when I was at the shopping mall, I stopped by the jewelry store. I didn't work there anymore and had recently quit. I just wanted to say hello to my former co-workers and wanted to tell my former boss that he had been right about the strange man. I filled him in on the details. As I was leaving the store, I glanced down the hallway and who do you think I saw? The strange guy again. He was walking towards the jewelry store and apparently he didn't see me at first because I saw that he was looking around and he seemed to be muttering to himself. He looked mad, extremely mad. I was really and truly frightened by him now, and I started walking as fast as I could in the opposite direction, hoping he wouldn't see me. I wanted to get to my car as fast as I could. Unfortunately for me, he did see me. And I had parked my car in the same faraway parking spot as I used to park at, 
Something in my mind told me that he knew where I parked at, too, and that if I went to it now, he would follow me, and there'd be some kind of confrontation in the parking lot. Besides, I didn't want to talk to him, and I was tired of making excuses. I just wanted him to leave me alone. I decided to duck inside a large department store. I was luckily well ahead of him. I went straight into the women's dressing rooms. I figured that would be the perfect place to hide. There was no way he'd find me there. I tried on several articles of clothing so that I wouldn't make the store employees suspicious of me, and when I thought that enough time had passed, I left the store. As I was walking to my car, I saw him standing on the sidewalk watching me. He didn't say anything, so I got into my car and drove away. I had recently broke up with an old boyfriend when I first met my stalker, so I was single and eager to meet someone new. I did end up meeting someone that I really liked shortly after that episode in the mall, and we started to date. We spent a lot of time at each other's apartments. Unfortunately, this new boyfriend only had about a year of college left, and then he would be graduating and moving back home. We did maintain a long-distance relationship for about a year after he moved, but we eventually broke up. Now, rollerblading was extremely popular back in the 90s, and my boyfriend and I each had a pair. One day, we were rollerblading outside of the apartment. We were about two or three months into our relationship, and as I was skating, I noticed a car driving slowly around the apartment. It was a tiny apartment building with maybe only four units on the first floor, and four on the second. There were two men inside of that car, and one of them was that strange man. And wouldn't you know it, I recognized the other guy, too. It was the same country bumpkin-looking man I'd seen a long time ago. Both men were looking for something, or someone. Then I noticed one of them pointing at my unit, and both of them smiled at each other, as if they knew they had found the right place. I don't believe either of them ever noticed that I was nearby. I quickly ducked out of sight. I can't recall if I ever told my boyfriend that I had seen the strange man near the apartment, but I definitely remember telling him that this creepy guy had been stalking me. He told me not to worry and that I was safe with him, and for about a year I didn't see the strange man, and I really thought that I was safe, that he had given up and moved on. A few months after my boyfriend moved back home, I was still living in the same apartment. The roommate that I previously had moved out so that she could live with her boyfriend, so I was now all alone. On a cold December night during the wee hours of the morning, I woke up because I needed to use the bathroom, and I couldn't hold it any longer. I was sleepy and groggy. I walked into my bathroom, which was inside my bedroom, and I used the toilet. I was wearing these short pajamas which resembled a bodysuit or a kind of onesie for adults. It had several buttons that buttoned up all the way to the neckline. I was too tired to button them all up and wanted to get back to bed immediately. So I took off the bodysuit and crawled back into bed. As I was walking from the toilet back to my bed, I suddenly felt very self-conscious. Despite the fact that there was no one else in the apartment, I felt as if someone was watching me but I tried to dismiss this thought because it was dark in my apartment, except for the light coming from my bathroom and the light coming from the street lamps outside. I didn't think anyone would be able to see inside. I only had blinds in my windows and there were no curtains, except for one window which was right next to my bed. 
It wasn't really a curtain, it was a quilt that I'd hung up, to keep the light from the street lamp from keeping me awake. For a time I thought that the blinds provided enough privacy, but now I don't believe they do. It is possible to see through the cracks in the blinds. I don't know why I felt as if someone was watching me then, but I did, and it gave me the creeps. I hadn't seen Strange Guy in over a year, and I hadn't thought about him for a long time. So at the time, I wasn't thinking that he could have been standing outside watching me through the windows. I just felt someone was. Truth be told, there may not have been anyone there, but for some reason I felt as if someone was out there. A few weeks later, I think in January, something woke me up in the middle of the night. I heard voices coming from outside. The voices weren't next to my bedroom, but they seemed to be coming from the area outside of my kitchen. At first I thought I was dreaming, but it quickly became apparent that these were real voices coming from two different men. I couldn't make out what they were saying. I was hoping it was just some neighbors passing by, but I did catch one thing that they said. One of the men said, I want to get that bitch. I didn't think that sounded nice, but I didn't think that the person was talking about me. Just a couple of guys standing a little close to my apartment, having a conversation about some woman. But there were several other times when I was sleeping that I'd wake up to a loud scraping noise coming from outside, as if someone were scraping paint. Both times this occurred during the wee hours of the morning, before dawn. I remember thinking to myself that someone must be doing some kind of work outside that involved scraping paint. It never occurred that someone might be scraping away the paint on one of my windows. I did think it was strange that someone would be working that early in the morning before sunrise. I didn't want to believe that there was something more sinister going on. In February, a few days before Valentine's Day, I had a nightmare about someone trying to break in. I don't remember the dream in its entirety, I just remember waking up from it and feeling frightened, but also relieved it was just a dream. I had no way of knowing this dream would prove to be an omen of sorts. A couple of days before Valentine's Day, I was up one night watching TV, getting a few cards ready to mail out to some family members. I finished my task, turned off the television, and went to the bathroom to get ready for bed. I had the door closed. The only light on was in the bathroom. It was then that I heard a noise that sounded as if it were coming from my bedroom window. I opened the bathroom door and saw the silhouette of a man standing right outside my window. I froze. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. A man was brazenly trying to break into my apartment while I was still awake. He hadn't even waited for me to turn off the bedroom light, get into bed, and fall asleep. I could see the man's silhouette on my very thin, light-colored quilt as plain as day. He had a knife in his hand and he had somehow inserted the knife in between the wood and glass, trying to turn the latch on the window so that he could unlock it. If he had succeeded in doing that, then all that he would have to do was raise the window, and he'd be able to come inside. There were no screens or bars on these windows. I was frozen with fear, standing there watching him in disbelief for about a minute. It was clear that he had no intention of giving up. He was extremely determined to open that window, at the time, I didn't know who the man was. The thought that it could have been my stalker never entered my mind once. I ran to my phone and dialed 911. I told the female operator that a man was at my window with a knife, trying to get in. 
I told her that he was behind my blinds and a quilt that I had hanging up, so I could not see his face. She asked me to pull back the quilt and blinds, just so I could get a description of him, but I refused. I was too terrified to look at him. I didn't want to look into the face of evil. Luckily, the police came in only a matter of minutes. The man at the window must have seen them. He got away from the window. But the police did catch up with them. They spoke to him about what he was doing there. I would find out a short time later, whenever the police came to my door, that the man had told them that he used to have a girlfriend who lived in my apartment building, and that he was looking for her. He told the police that he didn't have a car that night, and that his boss had dropped him off. The police told me that the man appeared to be not only drunk, but perhaps on another kind of substance. They told me that because they hadn't caught him at the window trying to open it, and I had refused the 9-11 operator's request to pull back the blinds and get a look at him, that they could not arrest him for trying to break in. They did say that they were taking him in for something else, but I don't remember what exactly. I just remember them telling me that they probably wouldn't be able to hold him for too long. As I was talking to the police at my door that night, I glanced over at the police car and saw the man sitting in it. He was watching me. I didn't know him personally, and I didn't know his name, but it was without a doubt the same man that had been in the car with my stalker that day, Old Country Bumpkin. I don't know how I slept that night, but I finally managed to fall asleep. I woke up the next day, went to work, went to my classes, just like any normal day. Only this time I was very alert and very cautious. I walked my classes like I often did, and as I was walking later that afternoon, I saw a man in a car who looked as if he was trying to get my attention, waving me down. It was old stalker. A chill went up my spine. I vigorously shook my head no, indicating that I didn't want to speak to him. I took off running in the opposite direction. I glanced back over my shoulder as I was running away and saw him looking at me in his rear view. That would be the last time I saw him. But what was the likelihood of seeing that man the day after Country Bumpkin tried to break into my home? I don't know what my old stalker had in mind. But now that I think about it, maybe he was hoping to persuade me to get into his car, or to meet him somewhere, that he was going to do whatever he could to proceed with his original plan, and to perhaps even kill me. Even though I only saw a single silhouette on my window that night, I believe wholeheartedly that my stalker was in on that attempted break-in, and that he was lurking somewhere nearby waiting for his accomplice to get the window open so that they both could come inside. He somehow evaded the police. I've never understood why he was so intent on hurting me. At first, I assumed he was angry about my rejection. Maybe he had low self-esteem. Maybe he thought that I thought he wasn't good enough. His obsession with getting revenge seemed to eat away at him for a long time, and it seems as if he had found himself a willing partner in crime, that country bumpkin man. I rarely think about my stalker anymore, but sometimes I do. Even though he was never able to physically get to me, I am still terrified when I think about what could have happened. I had a daughter later in life, and she is still a minor. It terrifies me to think about all the creeps who were out there, 
Trust me when I say that I'll always remind her to not be too trusting, and to never let your guard down. R. From S.D. It was a nice day out, so I had taken a chair outside from the kitchen. I put its back against the wall and sat down. The weather must have caused me to drift off for a bit. The next thing I knew, I felt someone tapping on my knee. I jolted awake and a sound drew my attention. I looked in that direction just in time to see someone turning the corner. I tried to stand and follow, but a nasty sting stopped me. There was a small cut on my knee that had been touched, where I'd felt the tapping on my knee. I waited for the pain to ease before I tried to catch up with whoever woke me. When I was able to move again, I circled the apartment twice, looking for them. I only stopped because I was hungry and wanted to wash my cut. But as I was about to enter the building, I noticed something that put a chill up my spine. Sticking out of the door, stabbed into it, was an old-fashioned razor blade with a hint of blood on it. What made the discovery chilling was that the door was ajar. My natural reaction was to call the police, so they sent a patrol car and I wasn't left waiting too long. The two police officers searched around, but found nothing. I tried to put this whole weird thing behind me. A week later, another day with beautiful weather, I decided to walk around town. The streets were mostly empty because of isolation. The abandoned look is pleasantly spooky. As I pass by a building, I hear a voice from its open doorway. Soft and slightly lisping, I hear... I remember you. I turned toward the speaker. A plump, balding man stood before me, dressed like a mechanic. A Sonon name tag identified him as R. I couldn't place him. Have we met before? Sorry, but I don't recognize you. I told him truthfully. He smiled. How is your sister? He asked, using her name. He looked too old to be her friend. I assumed him to be a teacher then. I told him she was currently living with family. He nodded. Still got that pet hamster? I paused when I heard that question. Was he still talking about my sister? I answered no. The longer the conversation went, the stranger it got. He asked about my family members, long dead, friends that I've lost track of teachers that have retired. I didn't know a thing about him, but he knew almost everything about me. I'm sorry to hold you up from your journey, he said, patting my shoulder. When you reach your mom, tell her I said hi. I'm not sure how he knew my destination. I certainly didn't tell him. As I walked away, I felt as if he was right behind me, following right on my heels. I glanced behind me, but did not see him. When I made it to my mom, I told her about the strange encounter with R, and asked her if anyone fit his description. She didn't answer immediately. She was just staring at me. Mom, what's wrong? I asked. How did you cut your shoulder? She asked me. Confused, I put my hand on one of my shoulders and then the other. One of them sting when I touched it. The same shoulder R had pat. 
So far I have not seen R again, and I'm not sure if I ever will. One thing I do know is if I do see him again, I'm not letting him get close enough to touch me. Magazines from JDW This happened back during my years of grade school, if I remember correctly. My sister and I are in college now, but this still gives me the creeps and rubs me the wrong way. Our parents left us home alone one night to go get dinner. They gave us our usual instructions before leaving. Lock the doors, lock the windows, don't stay up too late, and if there's an emergency, the numbers and information we need are in the little phone book above the counter. And most importantly, if someone comes to the door, do not answer it. With that, they were off. Coming and going at odd hours, like late at night, wasn't unusual, especially for our dad. He had a job that sometimes had him working late into the night, and we lived in a very safe cul-de-sac, so being left alone was not an issue. That night, however, our parents were out later than usual. At the time, we didn't give it much thought. Using kid logic, the longer we were alone, the more time we got to play on the computer or watch TV. So, why worry about it? I'm not sure what made us leave our rooms, abandoning our precious cartoons and games just to loiter in the kitchen. It's not like we were hungry, and we didn't have any pets to feed or take out. We started to talk to each other, finally acknowledging the time and just how long we had been alone, and while we weren't afraid, we were getting antsy and wondering when our parents would come back. Let me just mention here that this was a time before smartphones. Cell phones were a thing, but they weren't super common. If you had to call someone, you only had their landline. That meant no calling our parents. We weren't talking for long when something got my sister's attention, and before I could ask her anything, she motioned me over and we began to listen. There were footsteps coming from our front porch, but there was something off. Even over our talking, we should have heard someone ascend the stairs. The flight of stairs is long and they're old and creaky, and no amount of stealth can let you walk quietly on them. What's more is they only started at the very last row of stairs, almost as if the owner appeared out of nowhere. As we continued to listen and quietly talk to each other, we remembered at that last set of stairs there was a double railing. Think like the railing of an escalator, but taller. I'm not sure the purpose of their design, but if you can get over them, then you can easily skip most of the stairs, and while it takes some effort, an adult can scale them, just like climbing over a fence. Any more questions we had were cut off when there was a sudden knock at the door. We expected to hear a neighbor or something, but no one spoke. There was a second knock a moment later, but still no one spoke. There was a long pause. Then we heard the handle to the storm door turn and the door slide open. In that moment, we scrambled away from the door and backed into the kitchen. We had forgotten to lock the screen door after our parents had told us to lock everything down. Without thinking, I quietly asked my sister if we had managed to lock up everything else. A loud rattle cut off her reply. Looking back at the door, whoever was out there was trying to open the interior door. The doorknob twisted one way, then another, and repeated, becoming more hasty with each turn. We snatched up the phone book from its cubby and the phone from its cradle, frantically flipping through the pages, trying to find someone we knew. It didn't occur to us at the time to call the police, and we really only knew two of our neighbors, 
By then the door itself was shaking, handle still trying to turn as if whomever was outside was trying to force it open. Unfortunately, I can't really remember much of the conversations we had, but I remember that we called one of our grandparents, explaining to them what was happening. They did their best to help, but they were cities away. I can't quite remember the conversation, but I think that they told us to call our neighbors, which we did. We repeated the same panicked message to our neighbors. I remember when talking to the neighbors that the noise stopped. I remember the neighbor calming us down, saying not to worry, it's just people selling magazines, that they had gone to their house too. I remember my parents finally coming home, and we relayed the night events to them, but not much more. I remember asking our mom about the incident. I think she agreed that someone was trying to sell magazines or something, even though it was so late. We never really got a clear explanation, never heard or saw anyone. I don't think I'll ever find out who was really at our door that night, and it scares me. What I can say for sure is that no one tries to bust in your door because they want to sell you some magazines. Park Stalker from Jesse L. O. This happened about two years ago, and still scares me when I think about it. I live in the UK, and I'm from a smallish area, nothing fancy. I'm 18, but at the time I was 16, working at a family friend's pub collecting glasses. I'd work from 7 to 11 at night, and I lived about half an hour to 45 minutes away. To get home, I would have to walk through a park. This park has three entrances and exits, two at the top and one at the bottom, which leads into the town center and main shopping area. The top two lead to two different areas, one being a skate park and the other is literally right next to a comprehensive school and a big field. This park had a lot of bushes and trees in it and only has a few lights. These lights shut off at around half ten. Only lights left after that are the lampposts, which set outside of each entrance to the park, but they're very dim. Each entrance has a big gate and they're always open. I would have to walk the path that led towards the school, since it was the fastest way home. I worked at the pub for a year, sticking to the same routine to get home. I would leave at around 11. It would take about 10 minutes to get to the park, so I'd be walking through the park at around half 11. Now the one entrance I had to use to get into the park was the one at the bottom, the one that leads to the shopping area. It had one lamppost outside the gate, and that was it. With it, I could only see about ten feet into the park. There were a few benches, and no one was ever in the park at that time. During autumn and winter, it was always empty, even the streets were, so you could imagine my shock when I saw a man sitting on one of the benches. Now, this was strange. It's around forty-five minutes past eleven, almost twelve at night. It's pitch black out and freezing, and the dude was just sitting there on the bench. I couldn't see him too well, at first, but as I got closer, I got a good look at him. He was young, about 20 to 25. He had long hair and a ponytail, but not a scruffy one. It was tight and neat. He had a hoop earring, and his nose was pierced. I can't remember the color of his eyes, but he was very pale, and his hair was jet black with red tips, which went past his shoulders. He wore all black and dressed like an emo, to be honest. Looking back on it now, he reminded me of Dracula from the movie Van Helsing. He was on his phone and looked up at me as I walked past him. He stared at me. 
I gave him a slight nod and smile and just kept walking. He looked me up and down and smirked, which kind of freaked me out. He didn't say anything and I managed to get home. I didn't think much of him and forgot about it. The following night I went to work, I finished my shift and walked through the park again. And once more he was there, on his phone, wearing that all-black hair and a ponytail. He looked up and saw me again, smiling, and I smiled back, but I walked faster this time. Just like before, he didn't say anything. On the third night, this repeated, but on the fourth night, he wasn't there. So I walked through the park as usual, but the entire time I felt extremely uneasy. It was dark, no light except for the moon, and what did I suddenly hear? Footsteps, quick ones behind me. So I turned around, and I didn't see anything. But I wasn't taking any chances. I ran through the park, and I swear over the sound of my heartbeat and my rapid footsteps, I could hear twigs snapping and leaves crunching. After that, I began getting a lift home for about two weeks from a friend. But that friend soon went on holiday, so I had to start walking home through the park again. The first night, which was Monday, the man wasn't there, but I still felt uncomfortable. It was like I was being watched. The second night, he was there, sitting on the bench like he used to, smiling and looking at me, but this time he did speak to me, in a very deep voice. Hey, love the tights and skirt. <laughs> I was wearing a black skirt and sheer tights with thick black thigh-high socks and Doc Martens with a black biker jacket and thick scarf. I had to wear all black for work. I looked at him awkwardly and smiled and hurried away. The next few weeks he would be in the park and he would make the same kind of gross comments, always sitting on that bench. I would try to get lifts home as often as I could, but I'd still have to walk through the park most of the time. Oh, I hated it. One night things escalated. I walked through the park as usual and again he was there sitting and smiling at me. I tried to ignore him this time as he made comments about my body and what he wanted to do to me. As I was walking away, I was out of the light, so I could only see two or three feet in front of me. I must have been about twenty feet away then when I heard running behind me. I turned around, and bam, someone runs right into me full speed, knocking me to the ground. There was a heavy weight on me, and instantly I could feel hair on my face and a hand over my mouth. It was the guy... He was attacking me, and he seemed ravenous. The moment he took his hand off my mouth, I took the chance to bite him as hard as I could. He screamed and set up off me. I could barely see, but he was holding his hand and cursing at me, so I took the chance and pushed him off me and got up. I started to run, and I heard him running after me. I ran towards the first gate, the one I usually use to leave, but I was shocked, horrified, to see it was locked. I could see it had a lock on it, because of the lamppost on the other side. I was so confused, but I could hear him shouting, and I started to run again. I ran towards the other gate, and it was closed, but not all the way. There was a small gap, so I squeezed through. This was the skate park gate. I managed to get through as he tried to grab me, and I turned and looked at him for a few seconds, catching my breath. He stared at me, and then started to try to fit through the gate so I booked it as fast as I could. I ran toward the skate park path, 
The skate park was full of bushes. I ran to them and hid inside the bushes, waiting for him. I sat there, hiding, with my hand over my mouth. I sat for a minute when I saw him running through the skate park, looking for me. He slowed down near the exit path, which leads to a long path, and he literally stood there for a minute, sniffing the air like a psycho. No joke, he was sniffing it like some sort of dog. His hair wasn't in a ponytail anymore. It was all over. He was wearing a long-sleeved black shirt. It was winter, which confused me since it was so darned cold. He looked around, and I felt his eyes scanning for me. He kept on looking, beginning to walk down the long path. After about ten minutes, I felt it was safe, and I ran back toward the park. I made it back to the locked gate. This time, I climbed over it. I walked toward the school, following the path I always used, and had a strange urge to look back, and there, at the gate, was the man. He was standing and watching me. He laughed, saying, I'll catch you one day. Mark my words. And then that freak blew me a kiss. I walked away into the dark. I'd never been so scared in all my life. I booked it home telling my mom what happened. We reported it to the police and council and asked why the fence was locked. The council was just as confused. They had never locked the gate before. The police couldn't do much. They put a warning out, and that was about it. The creepy thing was he had to have learned my pattern. He had to have known I used the park every night to get home. It creeps me out to this day knowing I was being watched, and something far worse could have happened to me. If I didn't fight back, or if I hadn't fought back successfully, I still have nightmares from time to time about him, and wonder what would have happened to me if I hadn't gotten away, or if he had found me in those bushes. I quit working at that pub, and I haven't went to that park since. To that creepy guy at the park, let's not meet again. <laughs>